Roll Podcast. All righty. After an extended series of format deviations, which were met with, let's just say, a diversity of reactions, today, roll on original, quote unquote, original returns featuring my favorite, and let's face it, the audience favorite, scuba masked Paul to my John, Kale to my Reed, jokes which will soon be understood, Sir Adam Skolnick. How you doing, buddy? You know, Rich, I'm not gonna bore you with my problems. All right, let me just interrupt you right then there. Yeah. Because I will not allow you to bore me with your problems. <laughs> do I have let a blister just... under my toenail? <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. Okay, good. Anything else? Get it all out. No, uh, I have no problems really to speak of, not in the grand scheme of things, but um, busy times, getting ready to go away. We're getting the first pass, passport stamp and uh, Zoom is booklet. You going down south? Going down south, baby. Mm. Things are changing rapidly with the new variant. However, I know travel I'm, restrictions are are you know starting to abound. They are, but Mexico has recently announced. So you know that you, when you when you're getting a flight anywhere now, they they say check on the latest whatevers, mm-hmm. and so we the new guidelines. So we click on the guideline, and and I'm expecting you know, you have to get a test or proof of vaccination or whatever. And it says, Mexico has no requirements. <laughs> Come on in everybody. <laughs> Mexico has yeah. no requirements. But I am hoping, I'm hopeful that uh, the Omicron variant actually makes it counterintuitively safer in a way. Like people can't cancel their plans. There's not as many people at the airport. And, um, and we're going to a part of the world where they're getting 43 cases a day over the last seven days mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a 500 mile region. So uh, yeah, we're actually going to a safer place. I don't think that it's gonna chill holiday travel. I think people are like, okay, another variant. And we've been doing this for two years. We have to live our life. Like, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, setting aside government imposed restrictions. I don't know how much of an impact that's gonna have on people canceling plans that they've made. Maybe not. And are looking forward to, but we'll see. Um, Okay, well, before we get into it, just for those who might be new or newer, Roll On is our inconsistently biweekly news entertainment AMA mashup where we loosen the metaphorical ties a bit, discuss matters of import intrigue and nonsense, answer listener questions, have a few laughs, hopefully have a bit of fun. Um, and we got lots to cover today. Mm. I We don't really have a big story. We just have lots of stories. We'll see how long <laughs> this is gonna take us to get through, <laughs> but I'm excited about today's show. Before we before we dive into it though, I do wanna mention that uh, Shrimu, Julie's amazing plant-based cheese offerings, Uh, they're in the midst of getting everything ready for the holidays. So if that's on your wish list for the holidays, if that's a gift that you wanna give or something that you wanna enjoy yourself, you have to get your order in by December 13th. To do that, go to shrimu.com, S-R-I-M-U.com. And if you use code RRP22, you get 22% off. Just wanted to slide that in there. There's no better plant-based cheese company that I've ever tasted. And uh, the people and the staff, just like your staff here, like just co- top quality people. I had a, a good fortune to be able to meet a couple of them and yeah. um, just incredible operation and uh, big fan. It's big, good stuff. Big Shrimu fan. Good people, good product, yeah. all of that. Um, where do we wanna begin? Anything else you wanna mention before I check in? 
No, it's great to be back. I appreciate the uh, the love on on the onlines for yes. the OG roll on. I even got one yesterday saying, "Where's the where's the regular roll on?" Right. <laughs> we 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 diverted from our format so many times that yeah. I can't remember the last time it was just you and me. It was super fun to have Brogan here, yeah. and he adds a certain flair and spice to the program, but. I will have I have to say, Adam, you have a hardcore fan base out there that are that are very vocal about making sure that you are in good stead. They want to hear from Skolnick. They don't want they don't want a bunch of other noise. They just want to hear it directly from you. Uh, you know what? And I love them for it. I love yeah. you. I love hardcore them too. fan base. I love them too. Um, I'm getting ready to go to Austin. We're, we're recording this on what's the date? The, the 29th of November. Mm. Usually we record these on Monday and then we put them up. Thursday, but we're recording this um, the Monday in advance because I'm gonna be out of town in Austin at the running event, which is kind of a trade show for the running industry. I'm doing that for Solomon. So I'm gonna be there the whole week of December one. So we're we're front loading this a little bit, but I did wanna catch up a little bit on things that have been going on. We had a low key Thanksgiving. Julie was actually in Egypt. She just got back. She was on a spiritual pilgrimage there. It sounds like it was an incredible trip. Maybe I'll have her back on to share. She just, she went on an insane walkabout, which was cool. By herself? Um, No, she was with a group of people, Mm. but they were in Cairo and did all the pyramids and went down to Luxor and they were on a boat in the Nile for five days. Like she saw like so much cool stuff. Um, But last week I was in Vancouver um, participating in the Planted Expo, uh, which was a really cool kind of plant-based nutrition. Uh, event that was put on by Steven Merkovich. He's he's like the main guy there, which was really cool. I got to give a talk. And I also got to do uh, a live podcast event in a church, which was really cool that for a cool. smaller audience. Like maybe, I don't know how many people were there, 200 people or something like that. With these guys, Zach Berman and Dean Morris, who have a podcast called A Little More Good. They hmm. gave me a t-shirt, I'm rocking their t-shirt. Nice. In my seersucker suit. I love the um, suit. It was really fun. Uh, they haven't put that out yet. I don't know when it's going up, but I'll let you guys know. But we had a great talk and it was just nice to be amongst people and to do like a live event. Zach is uh, a co-founder of this company called Juice Truck, which was Canada's first cold pressed juice bar. Oh, he, he founded that in 2011, I think. And then Dean is this sort of iconic, iconoclastic pastor. Like he's a pastor, but he's a vegan and he's a runner and he's like a Lululemon ambassador. Right. And we had a, we had a really good time. I shared a couple pictures um, from that. Cool. And did I the, also did the Planted Expo do a rich roll crossword because someone oh, from them? Oh yeah yeah yeah. So <laughs> that was for the live podcast yeah, event. Okay. I didn't end up even seeing it, and they said they would send it to me, but they did a whole crossword puzzle based on words that you know I have a tendency to right. They they <laughs> pull out me of they, my quiver. They asked me for a few uh, yeah. a few additions. I think they that th- those made it. They they mentioned that they had t- <laughs> spoken to you. Yeah. <laughs> and those found their way into the thing. And um, and then I guess they it. were handing them out in printed form or whatever. Okay. And some people were like, oh, cool. And others were like, what, I have homework? Like, what do you want me to do with this? Oh, they didn't understand. So, uh, anyway, I should get my hands on that. We got to put it up on the site. Yeah, people I know, would, I know, I know. People would love this. I know, I yeah. got to get, they, uh, all right, guys, I'm sure you're listening to this. Send me that thing. Um, also, I wanted to thank everybody who submitted a listener story. We put the call out over the last couple of weeks to call our voicemail and leave a message with uh, 
how the show has impacted you. I think we, we've received something like 200. How many did we get guys? Like almost, 200. yeah, close to 200 stories. Um, amongst them, some some pretty incredible ones. And mm. we're in the process of editing, editing that together for like a really cool end of year episode that we're putting together. So thank you for everybody who who did that. It's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty special. Don't we want them to be credible though, Rich? Not incredible. We're we gonna fact check. Well, you're the journalist here. You wanna fact check them, get on the phone with all these people and verify the <laughs> no, but veracity I, of these stories. I just I'm pointing out the term incredible because incredible means amazing. Uh, okay. But it could also mean, you know, it's also there's that other mm-hmm. usage which we don't really yeah. use anymore. We 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 use it incorrectly. We use ninety nine percent of point nine percent of the time, I yeah. suspect. Yeah, so, I, myself included. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna check myself on that. Now will you use superlative? That's uh, one of yours. Super, well, that gets misused also. Yeah. Superlatives in general get misused. Are we gonna go down the grammar <laughs> rabbit hole? Sorry. Have you been fought? So ever since we- I did, miss we, you, Rich, I miss since you. I shared that guy on TikTok who does the grammar stuff yes. about bi-weekly. I started following him and he's just a constant source of enjoyment for his, the videos that he creates. I forget his name. We'll link it up. But you have to be on TikTok to follow him or? No, he posts them on Instagram okay. as well. I gotta yeah, follow yeah, yeah. him. Yeah, they're pretty good. Send me that guy again, please. Um, we have a couple people that we'd like to remember. Do you wanna yeah. kick this off? Yeah, in memoriam, memoriam, in memoriam. In memoriam, um, in memorial. Two intrepid souls lost. My friend, Tom Stoddard, this is his latest book. Where do I put it? Where's I don't know. The, where's the camera? Um, he's a photojournalist uh, who I worked with in the past. He's covered the civil war in Lebanon, the siege of Sarajevo, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, as well as the original Gulf War under the first Bush. Basically covered conflicts, catastrophes, social issues around the world for 40 years. Um, But that doesn't even come into like completely paint the picture of of who he was. I mean, he was so well regarded, Tony Blair had him him along with him for a week, Mm -hmm. you know, just him. Uh, in the entire day, to photograph him. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. to photograph him the entire day. Um, he only shot in black and white for a long time. He only used Leicas. Um, his he he used to quote Canadian photographer Ted Grant: "If you photograph in color, you see the color of their clothes. But if you photograph in black and white, you see the color of their soul." Um, just a great wow. guy from Northern England who uh, knocked on the door of his local paper and begged for a job. They made him an assistant photographer and basically never turned back. That was in the seventies. And um, I met him because in 2007, I did a story for Men's Health, a feature on these doctors and healthcare workers, both American and um, Karin uh, in, in this ethnic provinces of Burma. Um, but they were a lot of them were were expatriated into Thailand, and they, their base of operations was in Maesat, Thailand. And Tom was the photographer that came with me on this this feature as I followed them into displaced people's camps, or mm-hmm. we did together to displaced people's camps. Um, and and these were villagers who'd been had their villages torched and were run off their ancestral homeland and were trying to flee to the safety of Thailand, but had to live in these penned areas on the on the river. Um, in these camps up and where aid workers were kind of giving them food and medicine. And that was the story of Corinne State, much of Corinne State for years. And um, Tom and I snuck over the border. Um, we we uh, went to this camp, 
people who just had their homes burned down um, and spent a week together, uh, first in Bangkok, then Mesot, then in Corinne State. Um, and he was, you know, at that time, 2007, I was still kind of, you know, wondering if this was gonna work as a job, you know? Yeah. Like I started in 2000, was writing grants and doing what I had to do. Um, 2004, I started getting bigger publications. You know, we started LA Yoga and all of that. But by 2007, I was still very much in the eviction notice phase and mm. um, just starting with Lonely Planet. So things are just starting to get better. Um, and Tom, you know, said, you know, he would remind me, you know, we are lions, mate, we are lions. <laughs> Uh, just remind me that 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 we have to remain confident. We have to remain optimistic. We have to be able to fight through all the adversity that comes with trying to do this job in a you know climate that is not conducive to that. Because mm -hmm. if you know you you're getting paid months after the expenses come through, nobody cares. You know your bills are still due. Um, and uh, and then you have to deal with editors that are kind of fickle. They can be fickle. They 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 can kill a story. They can mess with a story. Not that I have that problem with editors in general, but it does happen. And uh, you know, Tom used to refer to them lovingly as the desk fuckwits. Right. And uh, not that he thought that of those of the mm -hmm. editors that he worked with, but just that it's a way of thinking so that you can maintain some sort of sanity while you go and do this. And meanwhile. You're, you're photographing or interviewing people who've been through hell. Um, most recently, his biggest story was the migration uh, of people from Syria and into, I think it was Lesbos, into Greece, mm -hmm. with that massive mm -hmm. influx. Right. Um, he was there for that. Um, to see him shoot, he's rolling on the ground. I mean, he's, 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 he's got knee pads, he's got elbow pads. I mean, he's a full body experience. And this is into his sixties doing this. Wow. And, um, and then I met, he, he had a show at the um, Annenberg Space for Photography in Century City. That's the last time I saw him. And I didn't even know he was sick. He kind of kept that under wraps. How um, did he perish? He had cancer. Uh -huh. And he just didn't tell anybody really. I mean, I guess his really close, close friends knew, his wife knew. Um, he was the type of guy like he married the love of his life, it turned out to be, but it was his best friend's wife and he died, the best friend died. And then he ends up uh, marrying, kind of very Conrad Anchor in yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. And um, Same with Julie's dad, actually yeah. it's a similar thing. And, she, and she's now had to bury both of those guys. Mm. Um, and so the, the memorial I think is today or it's this week. Um, this is the most recent book, like I said, Extraordinary Woman. It, it, women, it's, it's some amazing photographs. Uh, the guy's truly a legend in the business and, uh, and a great, great mentor to me and a great soul. And uh, I miss him and I love him. And I just wanted to share yeah. who he was with you guys. Sorry for your loss. How long ago was that, that the exhibit was going on? And that was 2016. Oh, so it was five years ago. Yeah, but wow. I spoke with him. We, we, we communicated in 2020, right before Zuma was born. Mm. Yeah, when this book came out. Life is short, man. Yeah. On that subject, I've got uh, a memorial to share as well. My friend, Jason Plummer uh, passed away this last week um, too soon. I'm not quite sure that there's clarity on how he passed away. Um, it was either an aneurysm or a heart attack. I think he was on a stationary bike at the time. Jason was uh, a teammate of mine at Stanford, an exceptionally talented swimmer, Commonwealth Games champion, uh, distance freestyler from Brisbane. He was on the 88 Australian Olympic team. He was world surf race champion. Like this guy was very talented, but he was also kind of a wild man. He was a free spirit. 
he was the class clown. Um, he was, uh, I think it's fair to say, not keen on authority. <laughs> he was kind of a good time Charlie mm-hmm. and, and was always the life of the party. And I had plenty of good times with him. Um, but he, uh, he had this history of clashing with Skip Kenny, our coach who was a marine sniper and liked to run the, <laughs> the team like it was a, you know, a, a sort of military outfit, um, which, which I mean, Skip, Skip was a, is a very complicated person and has a very complicated legacy. He was a guy who put team above all. And I learned a lot about how you build teams and how you create cohesion amidst you know, amongst individuals for a greater purpose. But he also kind of reigned on this idea of fear, which mm. didn't really work for me. And he was a guy who, if you were a favorite of his, like it worked really well. But if you were kind of on the outs or somebody that he didn't quite get along with, it was a bumpy road. And Jason was certainly one of those people. Mm. And there was this huge scandal in 2007 where it came out that Skip had expunged swimmers that he didn't like from the Stanford record books. <laughs> like he literally, he had beefs with certain people. And so in the media guide, he just like, they, they, they compile these lists of like top 10 times mm-hmm. for each event. He just, he just line item, remove them from the record books. <laughs> and I think Jason might've been the one to, to see it and realize it. And he made a stink about it because he was one of the people right. who, who had earned a spot on these lists and he had been surreptitiously removed it's without a, any explanation. It's like something out of a Wes Anderson movie. Which is like, <laughs> I mean, right. It's, it's sort of an ego is the enemy. Right. Like Skip had a beef, his ego got caught up in it and he made an error and he ended up getting suspended. And ultimately that was the end of his career and that career was an incredibly successful one. Mm. I mean, he lorded over, you know, perhaps one of the most successful collegiate swim programs in the history of collegiate swimming. I mean, yeah. he won 26 consecutive Pac-10 championships. Um, and he was, you know, like I had my ups and downs with him. I have friends that were on the outs with him and I have friends that loved him, you mm. know? And I, my relationship with him is fine, but he's a, you know, he's a crusty, difficult human being. I mean, <laughs> Plummer has this quote where I found it in an article kind of getting ready for today, where he, he said in reference to Skip that he was a guy with an ax to grind who has circumvented common decency. And I think you can understand why he would feel that way. Mm. Um, but at the same time, Skip would create these kind of traditions amongst the team that really congealed us as a unit. One of those things was called the pants. There was this um, pair of old sweatpants that dated back like, I don't know when, like like they almost felt like sandpaper. They mm. were so old, these red sweatpants. And each year uh, the team would vote on who would earn the right to wear those pants for the year. And it was basically the person who had the most enthusiastic team spirit. And you would kind of have to wear them like not every day, but like most days. Like to like meets just, and stuff? No, every day. Every day. Yeah, just wear them for like an entire year. Um, oh yeah, here it, I, I found the note. So it started, the pants were from 1967, from the 1967 <laughs> NC2A championship team. Um, 
my friend Sam McAdam had one had them one year. Mike Reynolds had them one year, and then I had them one year. So oh, you I, did. I got to wear the pants for a year. That's awesome. Um, but it was stuff like that that like you know was sort of created by Skip, like these beautiful little things. And there was all kinds of other traditions. Mm-hmm. We would do this annual road trip and all that kind of stuff. But but you know Skip's tenure ended in you know this sort of cloud of ill repute that had you know, no small part due to like Jason and what had gone down. Mm. But all of this to say that Jason will be missed. He was, he really was like a, a larger than life character and he's gone too soon, so. Where, where was he living? Was he local In here? Dallas, I In think Dallas. He, was do, he was doing like high-end real estate there or something okay. like that. Um, but had that, you know, that kind of like Aussie spirit, you know, mm. where he would light up a room when you would walk into it. Sorry about that. Yeah. Man. Um, here's to the, here's to Stoddard and Plummer. Yeah, here's, here's to those guys. Um, but on the subject of, of talented athletes, do we want to talk about the ascent of the Norwegians? We must. Yeah. They've, they've announced themselves. I don't know if they've, they have been announced. (laughs) It's the the age of the Norwegians on the triathlon slash Ironman landscape these days. You know, I would, I would, um, I would let Norwegians just run the world personally, like having met some Norwegians and seeing how they run their country. Um, I'm, I'm open to a very Norwe- nice safe car. Yeah, I think uh, I'm open to the Norwegian. Or is, wait, is Volvo Norwegian? No, it's Swedish. Yeah, no, no sorry. That's Swedish. Ooh, that's a faux pas. No, that's a faux pas. Yeah, I'm sorry. Norway about that. doesn't doesn't make automobiles. That's what I mean. They're above right. the fray. Well, somebody's got to make the cars. I wonder. Who, I know. Well, so you can't have them completely run the world. No, they can be the administrators. All right. Well, let's get specific. Yeah. You want to talk about Christian Christian, Christian Blumenfeld uh, and Gustav Eden. Mm-hmm. Christian, the Olympic champ that no one expected, um, was in his first ever Ironman. I know the first Ironman he's ever done. He's ever entered in Cozumel, and he rocked it in a world record time of seven hours and twenty-one minutes. It's not officially a world record yet because the swim, which he completed in 39 minutes for 2.4 mile swim, which is bonkers, was current aided. It was so. current. And I think they actually measured it and it came up like 500 meters short or something like that too. So it's unlikely Brad this Culp will ever be considered. for a triathlete and right. said, yeah, that whether or not it will be considered a world record. I mean, it, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, he was like six minutes faster than the previously, right. you know, fastest recorded time, which was that Jan Fredino? I think it was Jan yeah. Fredino who, who, who gave him major props online um, on, the, on the socials. But the bike is four hours and two minutes amazing, but the run is what blew me away. Yeah. 235 marathon. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. After, <laughs> after, after a 112 like, mile bike also, ride. also not for nothing being like really hot and humid. Right. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And he thinks that he could have run much faster. That's incredible to me. I know. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. His first ever Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some weirdness around this. Brad Culp had done some reporting on this as well. That that Iron, the Ironman organization made like no reference to this mm-hmm. for like days. Yep. Um, they were covering a different Ironman race that was going on uh, at the same time as as Ironman. Cozumel. I mean, they later on, like they ended up tweeting some stuff, but it, I found it to be very strange. I, I don't yeah. know what that is about. Do you think it has to do with the race organizers in Cozumel? Do you think it has to do with like well, not, somebody not being said, there I for tweet, the course? I don't know. Somebody, I tweeted this out. Like, why? How come like no love from the Ironman organization for Christian's performance or 
or even more broadly, anything about I am Cozumel to begin with. And right. somebody said something about how the Iron Man organization had like licensed the name to the Cozumel race, but it wasn't like, it's not part of like the fa- the hardcore family of Iron Man races. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. But I don't know why that would color whether or not they would report on it when it is an official Iron Man race. I'm gonna get into it because uh, I'm doing a story uh, on Christian for New York Times Sports. It'll come out in late December. It's obviously inspired by this incredible performance, which was, and I got the mm-hmm. idea because you messaged me about it. Right. And I'm like, oh, that is a good story. Well, and I had the opportunity to meet him. Mm-hmm. I met him tw- I met him at an event um, in Century City that was like a day or two before the Malibu triathlon right, right, and got right. to chat with him a little bit. And then I saw him at the race because I was doing the celebrity relay and he was doing a celebrity right. relay. So even though he went 721, let's be clear yeah. that my relay with Alexi Pappas and Mary Kane beat his relay. Yes. <laughs> Alexi reminded <laughs> the him of that. important thing, yes. <laughs> uh, but he's such a sweet, like sort of soft-spoken, mm. you know, uber talent of a guy. His, yeah. You know, he's very, he's very humble and grounded. I interviewed him before and he was really cool and accessible and I'm really looking forward to this and he's racing again in Jacksonville, I believe in mm-hmm, December 5th, right. so. Um, but the key races for him are St. George in yep. May and then Kona in October. And he's also part of, of this, um, this uh, sub seven project, you yep. know about this? Yeah, I've heard of it. I think Talbot <laughs> Cox told us a little bit about it when we were together right. in, in Utah. So akin to the Breaking Two project where they created a scenario conducive to Kipchoge breaking two hours in the marathon. They're doing something similar in, in Ironman where Christian and Alistair Brownlee are gonna go for a sub seven Ironman. And then Lucy Charles Barkley and Nicola Spirig are gonna go for a sub eight. And they throw the rule book out, like much like how, how Kipchoge mm-hmm. did it on that track and he had pacers yeah. and wind blockers and all of that. They're gonna do something similar in Ironman. Um, a peloton and, and pacers. Yeah, pacers, peloton. And um, I read an article where Christian was talking about like how that's gonna work and how he wants to um, use, you know, take advantage of, of those tools. And for the run, he wants his high school buddy, Gustav Eiden or Eden, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, to pace him on the run. Now, Gustav, fellow Norwegian, these guys went to high school together. They've been, you know, like it's incredible. Just went 234 in his Ironman debut, which is unbelievable. On the, on the, on the run? No, I, um, oh, I'm sorry. He went seven, he went 734, okay. I believe. Okay, unbelievable. Um, sorry, I misspoke. But Gustav is a better runner than okay. Christian. And, and, and Christian said something in this article to the tune of like, well, Gustav can get up and run a 220 like any day of the week, like it's no big deal. So to have Gustav pace him on the marathon, Christian thinks that he can go like 220, 225 or something like that, which is just unbelievable. Will they do um, a pool swim um, to make sure that they don't like no, do too many, I don't too think, a longer distance? Probably not, no, no. I, I doubt it'll be in a pool, but the details of this, like the date and the venue and all of that is to be determined. Like they haven't even figured out or they haven't announced like what the course would be. Okay. But he'll get to have, um, all of these athletes will get to have pacers on the bike. Like if you have somebody, if you can draft on the bike, right? You know that's a huge. Well, it's like thing, what we right? saw with James. So yeah. can can you know Christian drop twenty one minutes off his Ironman time with those extra advantages? 
we'll find out, but it's cool that they're doing it and it makes it exciting. Well, it's gotta come off the, the I mean, if he thinks he can shave off the run, which he says he can. So if he can shave five minutes off the run and 15 minutes off the bike. I right. Mean, it, I would think he could get with, I don't know if you can do a whole Peloton, like I don't know how they're structuring it, but if he can just be in a pack on the bike. Or is it gonna be a criterion or is it? I don't know, yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. But the point being these Norwegian guys and there's a third guy as well are like crushing it at the moment. And it's cool to watch it unfold. It is cool. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we take a quick break and we'll be back with lots more. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. 
I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. All right, and we're back. Should we talk about Kyle Rittenhouse and Ahmed Arbery? I feel like we should, even though on the date that this comes out, there's been a million takes on this. Yeah. It's sort of been in the news cycle and we're at the risk of it like sort of not being in the news cycle anymore. Maybe people are tired of hearing about it, but I feel like, you know, because social justice is an important theme or subject of the roll on and the podcast in general that we should at least spend, you know, a couple minutes on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how Roll On kind of started. It launched with with uh, talking about these, wrestling mm-hmm. with these issues. And I think uh, I think it, people wanna hear your take on it, especially as a, someone who's a, who was a lawyer, you're gonna have yeah. a, a viewpoint on these two cases and, and that kind of the nuances involved. Well, what is your take on the Rittenhouse acquittal? Let's start there. It didn't surprise me. I was not surprised by the acquittal. Um, I was, you know, I I am, I'm not surprised by it, but it, it does bother me that someone who is a, a juvenile, who obviously has some sort of emotional problems, mm-hmm. um, had someone buy him a gun and came from out of state to defend businesses, even though no one really invited him to do it. He wasn't really connected to these businesses and then comes with a gun and then everything happens. And then even after that, the police kind of let him walk by with the gun, which shows you, you know, there there was a lot of misreporting, especially during the trial, people thinking that he killed black people, that's not what happened, mm-hmm. but at this, it doesn't matter who he killed, but that, that was the assumption that I saw on social media. But I think it is fair to say if he was black and he'd come there and shot at two people, there's no way the cops would let him just walk by them mm-hmm. with a with a loaded weapon. So, uh, I mean, you could argue with me, but I, I mean, I find that very hard to believe. So that pro- that's a problem. The idea of vigilantism in general is a problem. But the you know, it looked to me, and I didn't. I didn't watch the whole thing, but uh, it looked to me that the prosecution was overmatched, that the law wasn't necessarily on their side and that um, he made a credible case for self-defense and um, he was emotionally uh, stunted. And so, you know, when I think of it, I think of it as a great tragedy for all involved, including Mm -hmm. him. Um, He probably doesn't see it that way himself at the moment. Uh, cause he's getting a lot of love from kind yeah. of people who are using him as a pawn and, uh, and, and um, they're happy to do that. And it's, it's, it's just a sad state of affairs, but that was my take on the Rittenhouse uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a solid take. There, there, it was challenging to see all of these misguided narratives mm-hmm. on social media mm-hmm. that were mischaracterizing what was actually going on. I mean, my understanding, was that um, it's illegal to buy that weapon in Wisconsin, but it's legal to own it. 
Mm-hmm. You just can't purchase it. And so, it's open carry. Hence right. the 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 state line thing. But he's from Kenosha, right? Like right. this is his hometown. Um, you know, purportedly he was defending a a a, a car dealership or something like that. Um, I think, you know, if you if you um, you bought into a narrative that was factually incorrect, that he. Uh, you know, he was out there to, you know, mow down a bunch of Black Lives Matter people than to just hear the verdict without really understanding kind of what was going on led to that kind of uproar in the wake of the verdict. But the truth is as a lawyer, like the prosecution had a very difficult uphill job here. They had Mm -hmm. to establish first guilt beyond a reasonable doubt on the offense itself. Plus they had to defeat the self-defense argument, which means they had to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So that burden is very high. And the facts of the case were just not favorable to garnering a conviction on that. But I think that um, the idea that two people are dead and a third is injured and nobody committed a crime is a, diff- is a difficult pill to swallow, right? Like yeah. how, could, how could nobody have violated any laws and this tragedy occurred? And I also think it's, it's it's hard to swallow that he was found not guilty on a number of lesser charges like reckless endangerment right. where the burden wasn't so high like the jury just went in you know 100% on acquittal across the board um but like you said none of this undermines the tragic nature of all of it um and it is disheartening that there is this characterization of Rittenhouse as this hero like he's been offered an internship by Matt Gates, things like that. I mean, I think he is being used. That's disturbing. Real people are dead. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a regard on the far wing of the right that that really matters because we have a living vigilante and that vigilante is useful in this political battle. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, that's really disheartening. I find. It's beyond his heart. It's 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 disgusting. He's he's a tool, in all sense of the word, and he's being used that way. Um, someone will go away. I think the friend who is I think dated his sister and then they became close and um, is a little bit older. His name is Dominic Dominic Black, according mm-hmm. to a Washington Post story I read. He bought the gun mm-hmm. for Kyle because Kyle was too young to buy it for himself. So that is, I think he's going to go away. So it's it's just right. Yeah, I mean, I think he'll have to do some time because that gun was illegally purchased and given to him. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, some someone's going to go away, and it probably won't be Kyle, which is odd. Um, the whole thing, <clears throat> and then there's the judge, right? I mean, the judge. <clears throat> he also was kind of uh, used as a uh, kind of a declaration from people on the left saying, see how unfair this whole thing is. But then the legal scholars for the networks were saying, actually, he hasn't been as unfair as some of this narrative online on Twitter is is saying. But I did watch Roy Wood Jr.'s kind of thing on Daily Show and where he is pretending bailiff and he's going back and forth with this judge. And if you watch that, which we should link to. Yeah, I didn't watch that. You mentioned to that that to me last night. Yeah. I forgot to watch it. Um, you see how a lot like the judge himself and how he displays himself it it is 
as if like it's a casual moment for him on camera, as, as if this isn't a tragic thing. It just, I was very offended by the judge's overall comportment. Mm. And um, it speaks, this is a very American issue. No other country would look at this and see these guns and vigilantes and think that that's legal. Yeah. And, and this narrative that guns make us all safer, I think we can throw that out the window. It's preposterous. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like, what is he, 17? Yeah could acquire one of these weapons and walk around with it. And, you know, if you're, if you're carrying an AR-15 and you're walking into a tempestuous situation because there's protesting on some level, conscious or otherwise, like you're soliciting conflict, something totally. is gonna happen. And just by dint of your presence, you're making whatever is happening more dangerous. And he was not advised appropriately by whoever adults were in his life. And maybe he did it without telling anybody. It's probably he did. But like, you know, I, I, the only thing I can think of where there's some semblance of justice that comes out of this is I hope the victims sue him, sue his parents and take their houses because he does deserve some sort of, there, there needs to be some sort, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but there needs to be some sort of correction and some sort of, reconciliation. And in, if you don't have that, um, then you have this, this gaping wound that's just gonna fester. But if you can have some sort of civil resolution, it's not necessarily gonna appease everybody, but somewhere where there is um, a price to pay, then I think you have a chance at reconciliation. And I think, you know, obviously they probably wouldn't lose their houses. Some big wealthy donor would just pay the fee. But I do think, I do anticipate a civil case mm -hmm. out of this. Yeah, I, I think that's inevitable. Yeah. Civil suits are inevitable. Because the, the, you, you tell me the burden of proof is much lower, right? It's a different case. burden. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a different burden completely. Um, all right, uh, do you have any thoughts on, on Ahmed Arbery? I mean, this went a different way. Different way, uh, also wasn't surprised by this. I mean, I predicted both things. Uh, in the comfort of my own home. I didn't predict them online, so I shouldn't. Yeah, I predicted <laughs> Not, everything. Okay, Nate Silver. Um, I predicted the last earthquake. No, um, I thought that, you know, this was different all the way around. The prosecution was incredible in this. That, you know, there was this concern because there was only one black juror that this was gonna be another one of these cases where uh, the killers got off, but that didn't turn out to be the case, which is great. Um, you know, there's this temptation to, to celebrate these things. It's just, it, it's another tragedy of a different sort. This is a, someone who's a runner in the neighborhood. We talked about this. Mm -hmm. it, it was so unjust. It was a modern day lynching. Um, the only acceptable thing would have been guilty. But then when you realize that they are guilty and they got convicted and the prosecution was fabulous and all these things are true and the, and the, you know, they did have to take the case out of the local district. They did have, it did take months of protest to get this case into court to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there, there was this period of time where maybe nobody would have paid for this crime. Mm -hmm. So, if you look at both of those things, while it's great that there was a conviction, it didn't come in without the pressure. And so what we have here, you look at both of them, you have a criminal justice system that still doesn't seem to work the way it's been imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I don't know what else to add to that. I mean, I think it was a different scenario from the Rittenhouse situation. Um, you know, Aubrey was unarmed. Um, and the facts, you know, lent themselves more favorably to the verdict that 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 we all bore witness to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, 
it's a situation also where we have these perpetrators who were emboldened by this citizen's arrest law, um, which ultimately becomes part of their defense, but doesn't win the day because they never declared it to Aubrey. And there was no felony being perpetrated in the midst of that, which of course, you know, basically allows you to make the argument that in many ways this can be characterized as a modern day lynching. But I think ultimately what I take away from this is from both of these cases is this situation that the United States finds itself in where we have these expansive open or concealed carry laws. We have these protective self-defense laws and then we have these stand your ground law, you know, st- self-defense stand your ground laws and citizens arrest laws like all of those together can be weaponized to create a very dangerous toxic situation. It's almost like one day maybe people might storm the Capitol and try to affect a presidential election. That might happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some dystopian future. <laughs> yeah, God forbid something like that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's all horrible and sad. It is. I mean, what what's the what do you take out of this as a sliver of some sort of hope or or shining some sort of some sort of I don't know, man. Shred I mean, I, of, of goodness. You know, pointing, having a spotlight on these things, you know, creates a situation in which we're talking about it. Yeah. And those conversations are the only thing that can ever lead to any of the kind of legislative regulatory change that I, th- that I think we need. But the flip side of that is that spotlight also serves to further divide us and create this rift between, you know, these two narratives of, you know, Rittenhouse as vigilante hero or, you know, an indictment on the the systemic racist nation that we all live on, live in, you know. And so how do we move forward from that productively? Well, uh, I think that's a good segue actually, but I, I want to say one thing about Rittenhouse. I do not put Rittenhouse in the same batch of the people that killed Ahmad. Um, yeah, I, I, Rittenhouse, that's, of course. Rittenhouse that's a good is, point. Is, a, is a stunted. He's a confused, a young, confused man. young man. It's horrible. He did not seek to follow someone and kill them. Um, and he didn't, wasn't the instigator the whole time. Um, you know, he really wasn't. He he sought maybe to. Use, no one carries the gun if they don't want to use it. So, you know, that's a different story. But I don't put him in that same batch. Um, but in terms of the segue, uh, what we don't have here is we, we, what we end up having. Whenever we talk about these kinds of issues, is we have two sides that are dug in, and we don't have this idea of the collective, and especially on the side that is for gun rights and all that stuff, they, they don't wanna give an inch. No one mm-hmm. wants to look at this thing as we're all in this together, really. Um, there's this growing uh, gulf and people don't want to think about how to move forward together. They wanna mm-hmm. think about how to move forward in this other future, but it typically comes at the expense of this uh, other, you know, the expense of the opponent. Um, South Africa is getting ready, just transferred Oscar Pistorius, you know, the Blade Runner, the mm-hmm. guy who um, had no legs, but was a, a remarkable sprinter anyway, he was an Olympic. And uh, I think he was in, was he in the actual Olympic games? Or I was, think he was. Yeah, he was, he was in the actual Olympic games. And, but then he uh, sh- killed his model girlfriend, claimed that he thought people were breaking in and she had barricaded herself in the bathroom because of a break-in, but uh, you know, it could be that he was beating on her over mm-hmm. the course of time and she was protecting herself from him. 
He ends up shooting her, claims that there was invaders. It turns out that wasn't the tr truth. And um, he gets sentenced to 15 years in prison, which sounds light to people here in this country. But in uh, South Africa, they have something called restorative justice. And he's now eligible for parole, parole at having served half that 15 year sentence. But to get parole, you have to have a sit down with your victims or the victim's family if mm -hmm. the victim is dead. And so they moved him to a prison in the town where his, uh, um, and I don't know why I'm spacing on the, the woman who he killed. Um, let's get that real quick. I don't quick. remember her name. Yeah, we gotta get that. But um, her parents, uh, it's, it's, it was uh, Ravika, yeah, Riva, Riva Steenkamp is her name. And, uh, and her parents live in this town that he just got transferred to. And apparently there's seasoned professionals that bring these two parties together and it's a brutal multi-day, multi-session um, therapy session mm. where you have to come to um, some sort of un mutual understanding um, and forgiveness is the goal and res taking responsibility is the goal. Talk about mutual you know like this idea that we're all in it together that's how yeah. that's how it works and i know having covered some prison reform stuff uh for uh long reads um the person i was following in that story lori dawson is a big believer in restorative justice would like to see restorative justice here in this country how did that what is the inception of that in south africa you know it, it, i think it comes from a post apartheid era to try to get people who uh out of prison to empty the prisons because there were so many political prison mm. prisoners back there I, I i would have to do more research but that's my understanding and is there data that this is effective the the data that i'm aware of is more in that the reason that 15 years seems light for a murder case to us is because we put people away forever. But the data that I'm aware of is there is actually a limitation to how long you put someone away to what what becomes of their life afterwards. Mm -hmm. And 15 years is, is like gives someone a chance to actually rehabilitate. Right. So it allows you to look at the person as though, you know, we wanna punish them forever because you took someone away forever. And I get it, I understand that impulse. I, I also grew up here. Punitive is only one arm of, of justice and rehabilitation is another important prong that we don't really value or prioritize in our system. No, we don't, but, and, and you see it, you know, look, when we talk about um, prison reform or criminal justice reform, uh, restorative justice is definitely very much some, a touchstone with people who are really active in that community. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, you know, because it's poor people, it's people of color who go away um, for crimes they commit maybe when they're 18, 19, 20, this is, this is the typical thing, right? And, and we'd like to see some way for some pathway towards rehabilitation so that we have less suffering overall around this one crime, right? So we can create something productive out of it. And there's plenty of people who have uh, come out of prison and created productive lives, uh, but it's typically because they just resolve to do it. And mm -hmm. it's the exception, not the rule. And so when you look at, um, but then, you know, the shoes on the other foot, you have the George Floyd case, you have this case of the Maude Arbery and typically the people on the left who would be more into crim criminal justice reform definitely want to see their pint of blood. You know, they mm -hmm. want to taste the pint of blood and I get it. But when it comes to things like restorative justice, you have to believe in it for everybody. Um, right. It's really interesting and compelling to see South Africa 
um, go this far with it. And it actually seems to work because they wouldn't be continuing to do it if it didn't. And yeah. um, it's interesting kind It is interesting. I mean, yeah. it's very, to me personally, it's very reminiscent of the Amy Beale story. Mm-hmm. I think I've told this story on the podcast before. I can't remember. So forgive me if you've already heard it, but Amy was a friend of mine at Stanford. She was on the diving team. Um, and she went on to become an anti-apartheid activist. She got a Fulbright scholarship. She went to South Africa to study and she ended up getting murdered in 1993 by Cape Town residents. Mm. Um, she was, I think she was driving a friend home to one of the townships and she got pulled out of her car and stabbed. I think she was stabbed in the head. It was a horribly vicious, violent crime that culminated in her death. And in the wake of that, four men were convicted of the crime, but they were pardoned in 1998, like only five years later by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because at that, and under that rubric, if your crime was politically motivated, you could get this lighter sentence or your, your sentence could be you know, commandeered. And they established that it was a politically motivated crime, which was very controversial. And this was a big story in Cape Town and across South Africa at the time. Um, but what, what makes this story so compelling and interesting is that Amy's parents supported the release of these men. Um, they had to testify about it. It was like a big thing. And then in 1994, like, can you imagine your, your daughter's murdered and then you go to the hearing or whatever and say, yes, you know, release these people. Like, can you imagine? I can't what imagine that would it. Require? No, I, I also can't imagine the pain involved. I mean, I think it, it must have something to do with forgiveness and moving forward, but um, yeah. it, ta- it, it, it takes a lot of courage to get to that spot. So no, I cannot right. not imagine any of that. But the legacy of this lives, lives on. I mean, in 1994, uh, her parents created the Amy Beale Foundation that was set up to empower township use and two of the convicted murderers ended up working for the foundation, which is unbelievable. Um, Amy was like honored by Nelson Mandela. And there's actually two schools, like a high school and some other school in New Mexico that are now named after her. It just shows that there was obviously some sort of restorative justice element so that's, in play. Yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. I bring it up because yeah. I don't know, you know, tr- the Truth and Reconciliation Commission obviously comes out of the apartheid era as right. well, but it seems, sort of a close cousin to this idea of restorative justice in a different form. Yeah, I mean, it, it restorative justice belongs, you'd think belongs to the future of some enlightened society when we're all mm-hmm. able to let go of pain easier and, and, and stop pointing fingers um, because it does come from, you know, the punitive side comes from the shame, shame, you know, we will stone you to, it's very old school. Right, it comes but moving from, forward requires forgiveness and it requires a belief in rehabilitation and these other things. It requires a very evolved yeah. point of view. And yeah. I'm not saying I would be the guy right. rooting for that if something mm-hmm. terrible happened to people I love. So it's not that I'm saying it's an easy thing. I just point out that it seems remarkable to me. Mm-hmm. And and then the, the real takeaway is that our sentences probably are too, I mean, I think we know they are too harsh. Um, but then, you know, what's the, because we already, we see it all over, the states now there's been stories about DAs that have been trying to you know 
empty the prisons and empty the jails. And that seems to be backfiring with, uh, with theft and murders going up. So, you know, the, the, it, we're in this messy in between time where vigilantism is up, crime is up, prosecutors want, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's abolish the police. Like we're in this weird tectonic plate shifting it time. It's weird. Yeah, it yeah. It's weird. Yeah, where do we land? I don't know, Yeah, I don't know, but we need more, we need more like Brian Stevenson's out there. We do. Talking about this. Uh, his and, book's insane. I know, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, all right, should we switch gears? Well, it's, we are switching gears, but I think what I've realized halfway through this, this is, <laughs> we're touching on these stories. This is legal corner. Yeah, it is kind of. <laughs> this is rich roll legal right. corner. Um, I was not a criminal attorney though. So my my like acumen around criminal procedure is, is let's say weak. Okay, but this best. is not a criminal case that's lawyer. coming up. Right. We have, we have a new case that's kind of, right in the RRP wheelhouse. And I came aware of this because of my friend, Alice Drivers reporting. She is uh, a gifted freelance journalist. Um, she's been, her stuff's on CNN, her stuff's been in Time, I believe. She's starting to write for the New Yorker now. Um, she's got a book deal in, in um, that's happened um, and she's got that going. She has written for long reads. She's very gifted, very talented. I met her years ago and we've just stayed in contact, big fan. Um, and she has been reporting on the COVID deaths in the meatpacking industry. Uh, and she was uh, kind of talking about this on social media and I uh, and made people aware of this lawsuit and kind of uh, posted the link to this, to this uh, landmark, looks like class action suit brought by uh, workers alliances for the food chain workers alliances, community workers alliance, different unions against Tyson Food, Tyson Fresh Meats, Keystone Foods, JBS USA, and Pilgrim's Pride Corporation. These are mm -hmm. the main meatpacking industry. Um, and th this case is focused outside of Alice's home state, which is Arkansas, which is she's been focused on. But I'll talk about this case and then I'll talk a little bit about what she told me is happening in Arkansas. But so the, the, the premise of this case is these meat production companies have received over $150 million in federal funds since uh, the pandemic started. Um, this was part of the food insecurity concern. Mm -hmm. um, processing workers are mostly people of color, which we know often migrants, they're, they're typically Southeast Asian and Latino now, but there certainly um, are some uh, uh, African-Americans as well and, 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 and some white people there, but it's the vast majority is, is POC. And over a hundred have died in these states where this, with this uh, lawsuit, these lawsuits are taking under place. Under the employment of Tyson. Yes, under the employment of these various so meat production like companies. Like meat production employees broadly, just a hundred that worked for Tyson. Tyson and these other companies that I mentioned. I so it's a, it's, okay. a, it's a handful. Um, while white managers have managed to remain healthy and that hundred we should say is based on official statistics and Alice doubts those numbers. And she's been working in Arkansas and she is, she says in Arkansas, they claim it's between a hundred and 200 just in Arkansas alone. And that's just Tyson. Uh, but Tyson has such an influence there that she doesn't, she doubts those official statistics. And she actually does this by going to these small town cemeteries and counting the headstones of people with, with Karen names. Cause Karen state Burmese migrants are a lot of them are there, um, Thai names uh, and, and finds that it's, it's over 200. Mm. Um, 
But the idea is that when we focus just on Tyson, Tyson has incentivized workers to come in during COVID by giving them $500 bonuses twice uh, while the office staff worked remotely. So the premise of this lawsuit is your white office staff got to stay home. Your white office staff didn't have to come to work. Um, the POC had to come in and you're, you're taking money from the federal government. POC had to come in and by June, 2020, when the pandemic was still rolling, at, at, its, at its peak, uh, they were brought back in and the pre-pandemic policy of workers being fired for missing shifts, even if they're sick, was back implemented. Now, when you're talking about migrant workers who work, who live in company housing and their rent for the company housing gets taken out of their paycheck, getting fired is a big fucking deal. Mm -hmm. Cause you, you lose your housing. You lose your housing. So uh, that's what's happening. And so even if they've been exposed to COVID, they were encouraged to come in. In fact, they were told they had to come in. Um, even mean, if they were, even if there was, they had known exposure. Known exposure. That's what this, this is what this lawsuit alleges, mm -hmm. right? Um, meat processing plants is also another allegation have been COVID hotspots from day one. Uh, as of May, 2020, six of the top 10 per capita COVID infective counties had a meat pot processing plant. They had higher infection rates than New York City and LA when they were the quote epicenters. So, you know, these Higher per capita. Per capita. So in these small towns, more people were getting COVID per capita than in New York mm -hmm. at the height of the of the first wave. Um, like I said, Arkansas, 100 to 200 people have died officially, but Alice is is, is things it's it's well in excess of that. Um, Clarksville is a town of 9,000 people, 300 Korean refugees live in company housing there and work at Tyson. She uh, is now seeing Afghans come in. Afghan refugees are being assigned to places in Arkansas. She predicts that they will be working for Tyson. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which is, uh, you know, she's interviewed some of these people. And if they're coming from Corinne State, which we just talked about, uh, they look at this and they're like, well, it's worse at home. You know, this is better. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, that complicates a journalist narrative, which wants to paint the evil picture. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not entitled to the same protections as people here in this sure. country. Sure, and and that can be, you know, leveraged. Like, oh, it's it was so much worse at home. Right. So, who, you know, who cares how bad it is here? Like, the company can take advantage of that. And why are these places hot spots? Well, you're working in refrigerated areas. Um, you're working very close quarters. There's no six feet separation. Um, there's there's uh, yes, you might have a mask and a shield, but that's not going to save you from these other problems uh, that are inherited, inherited in, that are part and parcel of this kind of work. And, and then, you know, pan back and you see, we're talking about chicken plants in these lawsuits. Um, I mean, chicken waste piles up, it ends up being flooded, going into our rivers and streams and causing a whole host of environmental catastrophes. I mean, this is, talk about intersectional politics. I mean, this is like the way the food system has, has, has has uh, basically created this problem that is so intersectional is remarkable. Yeah, have you seen they're trying to kill us yet? Not I mean, yet. This, it confronts this very issue, yeah. uh, particularly through the lens of, of industrial poultry farming yeah. and how these farms are in these rural communities of color, these underprivileged communities, poorer communities, and the toxic waste sludge, like the 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 basically the fecal matter, yep. like all of the waste that these packed in chicken farms create, they put them in these reservoirs, these pools, yep. and then they spray it all over the place. Yep. And it goes into the air. And in the movie, um, there's a scene where 
John visits this woman who lives nearby one of these farms and they they go inside the house and they test, they like swab inside the house and there's there's literally poultry fecal matter residue all across the house and people die of respiratory illnesses yeah. or die earlier die and younger. have all these health complications as a result. And of course, this waste finds its way into our water system, into mm-hmm. our creeks and ultimately our rivers and then into the Gulf of Mexico, you know. Kills fish, Just, kills yeah, reefs. It's really it's, bad. It, we, um, I covered this with pork in East North Carolina. Um, I've been in, into homes where the, they've had to deal with pig shit, literally f- slapping the windows in their house, mm-hmm. you know, covering their houses and saturating um, in, in East North Carolina. The, and the thing is when you actually pan back from that process, the chicken producers, the pork producers, the people actually farming the chickens, raising the chickens, raising the, the pigs, they barely get by. Yeah. The the money is these is the big companies sure. and the processing plants. So they own they're profiting. So that's why they're going after this. And and um there is Alice tells me there'll be other states where their similar lawsuits are gonna happen. It's all gonna start to unfold as we go forward. Um she couldn't tell me where, but there are gonna be other lawsuits. Mm. This is the first of a cascade. Um, this, so be, this was just filed, and who who's this the was filed a couple of months ago? Who's yeah. the plaintiff? Who's the wh- I th- um, the plaintiffs are the unions for these employees? I see. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, I wonder if if um, the ag gag laws get in the way or create a barrier when it comes to discovery. The the that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think we'll find out. Yeah. You know, just got just got filed and we'll see, you know, with the problem with some of these class actions is you never never sees the light of day. They end up settling and you know, the lawyers right. make some money and I hope that's not the case here. Um but it's interesting how it all kind of comes around where Corinth state gets has their villages burned out, people refuge, they end up the lucky ones get to come to the United States and this is the reward. So, you you know, Afghan, Afghanistan has its issues. People escape, the lucky ones get on the plane and where are they gonna land? They get plugged right into yeah, this, this system. other system. And, um, you know, it's just the way of the world right now. And it always has been, I think with migrants, um, there's always been people who've gotten lucky and worked their, or have worked their ass off and gotten out of it. Some of those people will go to these Tyson foods and will work their way up and do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people will, uh, could end up statistics. I mean, that's just the way it goes, but um, it, is, it is the food system as we know it right now. Yeah. Well, speaking of the food system, as we know it right now, we have another legal dispute that we're gonna get into. <laughs> legal corner um, continues. Yeah, and, and as much as I celebrate the, the innovation and the advent of all of these new, um, plant-based food companies who are creating meat and dairy analogs um, that that can supplant the Tysons of the world and render them obsolete. That's right. a good thing for everybody, right. right? Right. But some of these companies are now becoming the behemoths that they're trying to supplant, and they're not immune from from behaving badly from time to time. And I think it's important just from an objective point of view as an ambassador of the plant-based movement and somebody who wants to see a plant-based future for all of us. I think it's important for our environment, for our health and for a number of reasons that anybody who's listening to this or watching it understands about where I'm coming from. But we're in a situation right now where impossible, impossible foods, uh, the impossible burger, most of you guys know about it. 
I had the founder and CEO, Pat Brown on the podcast. We had a nice conversation. Well, Impossible is now a massive company. They're valued at $7 billion. I think they've raised 2 billion. Their recent, most recent raise was something like $500 million, um, which is great because we have a huge plant-based food company that's providing an alternative to everybody's favorite cheeseburger. So that's something to be celebrated. At the same time, it's important to hold these companies accountable and in check. And right now, Impossible Foods has sued uh, another company called Impossible um, that is essentially a blog and a series of, of sort of online content created by this guy, Joel Runyon, who's an ultra runner, he's a blogger. He's, he does like motivation stuff and talks about, I think maybe he has a supplement line and talks about like fitness gear and stuff like that. I think he's, he's been doing this for a long time, like many, many years. And he started his blog and his company um, back in, I should pull up the article, but I think it was like four years before Impossible Foods even, maybe you can pull that up, yeah, Adam. Pulling it up. Four years before Impossible Foods even existed. And he filed a whole bunch of yeah, trademarks. Two, 2010, 2010 is, is when he, right? he, uh, he began it, yeah. And he, he filed his paperwork and secured these trademarks, created a logo and this brand that he's been building ever since for the last 11 years. And if you look at his logo, it does look relatively similar in terms of typeface or font to Impossible Foods. Well, Impossible Foods is now suing him for trademark infringement mm -hmm. and they wanna obviate all of his trademarks. They wanna, they're seeking to cancel pre-existing federal marks that he established over a decade ago. Yep. And their Impossible Foods has hired Wilson Sonsini for this, which is, a, it's, it, Wilson Sonsini is like the biggest Silicon Valley law firm. Like they okay. represent all the tech companies mm. and, you know, it takes, uh, you know, a lot of money to defend against these suits. And Joel's just a dude. I think right. he lives in Austin or something like right. that. So it's truly a David and Goliath situation. And, and Joel claims it's, that he thinks that they're just basically using that muscle to get him to give up. Right. They, yeah, but they also want him to pay their legal fees or right. something. Yeah. It's crazy. And and it's just he's just a dude with a blog and a small right. brand, you right. know, who's been doing this before Impossible Foods even existed. So it is it does appear to be a situation in which he's being bullied to relinquish these trademarks that he rightfully and legally secured a long time ago. Now I haven't read the complaint. I don't know. It got thrown out. What Impossible Foods? Well, there was there was an article on Bloomberg that I couldn't read because I'm not subscribed to it. Okay. But it said that it was it was it was tossed on jurisdictional grounds. Right. But I couldn't. I wasn't sure if that was the same case or not. It, it seemed to but be. But Joel the same case. hadn't has not commented on it as of the time of us recording this. Okay. So I'm not sure on the state or the status of this dispute at this moment. Um, but I think irrespective of how this pans out, it's just not a good look for Impossible Foods to be suing the small guy over something like this. Like, look, I'll applaud the plant-based companies when they're suing over labeling restrictions right. that say they can't call their, you know, their plant-based meat a burger right. or you can't call oat milk milk or you right. know, all of that. I think it's bullshit. Right. And I'm glad when, you know, people like Miyoko's Kitchen stand up and and fight that. But to be beating up on this guy and bullying him out of his trademarks when you're in 
uh, a situation where you're trying to win the hearts and minds of people because we're trying to blaze a better, brighter future for all, it doesn't seem to be a very politically wise move. It comes off as an elitist asshole thing to do. Right. And um, you don't have to be an elitist asshole just because you've got a good idea. <laughs> I know. And it's like, does this guy with his blog really, is he Nobody creating, cares. Is he creating reasonable confusion in the mind of the no. average consumer that he might be the guy behind the impossible burger? Nobody cares. <laughs> but you know, the bottom line is though, that like the reason they get away with this and all these big companies do get away with it. Joel sees himself as kind of an example of this happens all the time. He made a video on Twitter yeah. and a lot of people shared it. So there's been, you know, there's been, you know, some chatter online. But, about but nobody this. really cares. Like the average consumer, when he orders an impossible right. burger so, such and such, right. is Impossi not gonna even yeah, know about won't this. Know, and yeah. impossible, that's why impossible foods is not making a statement about right, this right. or whatever, they're just gonna pursue their claim and yeah. whatever happens, happens. Right, and they got 500 million the other day, so they have the money for it. Yeah. And Wilson uh, Sonsini is billing them. They are billing them. <laughs> some lawyers are working hard right now on Sand Hill Road. <laughs> yeah, there, some lawyers have Joel's face on a blackboard. <laughs> poor, poor Joel, poor he, Joel, Joel seems like a nice guy. He does. Anyway. I'm with you on this. Um, and I like Impossible Burgers. I'm not eating them that often Good anymore because they're not. Good for you. More whole with, foods. They don't so. agree with me. More whole foods. I mean, you know what I look take from these uh, last couple stories though is that <clears throat> when you're talking because is that we're going to make this all about legal disputes now? No, I'm, this, is, this, is, this is a food. This is a, this is a food comment. As much as I do like the flavor of an Impossible Burger, um, it still is a process to kind of. Uh, food sure. that comes from a centralized location. It's still part, it's still kind of a stepchild of the food system that as, as it exists. And I think the healthy way to eat is local farmers markets or local markets where you can know where the food, you know, like blueberry, it's, it's astonishing to me that blueberries from Oxnard or, or, and Santa Barbara are more expensive than blueberries from Peru. I mean, the idea mm -hmm. that the way that people eat in the, in the industrial food that's delivered to your, average grocery store and we just buy it. Um, it doesn't taste the way it's supposed to taste. It's not, it's not as good for the environment. It's not as good for you. Um, you really have to try to get local with your food and that's the only way to eat. And then you're not part of this. Yeah. Um, impossible beyond all of these companies are a pivot away from the ills of animal agriculture and as such should be celebrated. The fact that these are alternatives that have found their way into fast food and fast casual restaurants and grocery stores, et cetera, all across the world is a step in the right direction. But just so we're clear, the Impossible Burger is made from a monocropped, you know, series of ingredients that are GMO. It's a processed food, it's not, you know, essentially it's, it's, it's not a health food, no. right? Um, it's problematic in that regard. It's not a perfect thing. No. So there's like anything, there's pluses and minuses with no. this. Um, but- There's good people on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> so next time you go into whatever restaurant, demand your, your locally harvest impossible burger. Yeah, it's a happens. tough sell at Taco Bell, but I try it every time. <laughs> you do. Do you have any locally <laughs> harvested blueberries? Where are those drive-through? Where's that tube of avocado paste coming from? Yeah, right. You'll be met with a blank stare <laughs> for that. Um, I want to. I want to shout out my buddy Toby Morse, um, friend of the pod, 
friend in real life, one of the most positive, optimistic, cool people you're ever gonna meet. Um, punk rocker behind the band H2O, just a great guy. And he wrote this children's book called One Life, One Chance. I'll hold it up for the awesome. camera, um, which is just such a cool, like sort of self-created thing that, um, that he made that he's self-publishing. Uh, and it's just a cool book for kids. So if you're looking for kind of a groovy, um, gift for the holidays for a young person or for a parent to read to a young person. Mm. Um, I would re- recommend picking this up. Um, it's got a foreword. Well, first of all, I made a little cameo in there. Can you see? Oh, really? Can you pick me out in the lineup? I believe I can. Yeah, on the upper Top left, left. There, made a little cameo. Um, but it's uh, it's got this beautiful foreword by, by our favorite Instagrammer and action hero, Josh Brolin. The bard of Instagram. I know, which is such a cool thing that like Josh would write this forward for uh, a children's book. And it's so kind of heartfelt and just lovely. Josh seems the opposite of a client of Wilson Sonsini. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this, this poet, this Baudelaire stuck in the body of an action hero. That is Josh Brolin. Yes, you sent me his um, shout out to Jimmy Chin's new book, There and Back. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're both huge fans of Jimmy's. Sure. Um, And uh, that was pretty moving, pretty cool. Yeah, Josh published just a a handheld talking to his phone video of him expressing how touched he was by Jimmy's book Mm. and he's paging through it and he becomes progressively more emotional as the video goes on where he's literally welling up in tears talking about how it has inspired him to try to you know uh, inject more adventure into his life mm-hmm. and his remembrance of friends lost and things like mm-hmm. that and it just it, I don't know it just it touched me I thought it was really beautiful yeah his wife uh, comes in like two thirds of the way in and uh, she could, obviously she heard him talking yeah. to his phone again <laughs> and has to heckle him. I know, <laughs> that was funny, wasn't it? I loved it. Um, I wanna get the link for uh, Toby's book um, so I can shout it out, but I didn't know it, I'm pulling it up right now. I think it's, um, oh, it's h2omerch.com. Okay. Yeah. That's where you can find it. One Life, One Chance is the name of the book by Toby Morse with forward by Josh Brolin. Beautiful. What else do we got? I think, I think we're heading into the movies. Yeah, we're gonna get it. We're pivoting away from, from Legal litigation. Corner. Yeah. And we're getting into the streaming. Should we take a so break? We've, uh, yeah, why don't we take a quick break and we're gonna be back with some hot picks for your holiday viewing. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. 
It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, And the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a Birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. 
Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, we're back. We're gonna talk movies and streaming, but Adam had a little bit of a revelation during the break. Yes, Alice uh, Driver just messaged me with national statistics as of October 27th for COVID cases in the meatpacking industry. There has been 60,000 nationwide COVID-19 cases among employees of meatpacking plants and more than 250 deaths. Those are the official Mm. um, statistics and that's nationwide. So um, So more than double that quote that right, you gave right, previously. Right, 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 yeah, right. Interesting. But she, like I said, she believes that the deaths at, uh, far ex- exceed that number. Yeah. Yeah. All right, movies. Yep. We haven't done this in a while. So much content has come and gone. I know. Since we last, I could do like a movies and TV podcast every day. I consume a tremendous amount of content. You know? But we're gonna have to restrict this to two projects. I've been I will telling say, you, you need a spinoff. A spinoff, a spinoff show. You need a spin- have I, how long have I? How long have I been telling my you that? Movie and TV recommendations. It doesn't stop Bill know. Simmons. That's true, but he's owned that for a very long time. I mean, he started right. as a sports and as a and movies pop guy, culture. and yeah, his pop culture guy. His his movie acumen is impressive. It's very impressive, sure. and he has an incredible memory. Like he can remember he does. scenes, and it's quite amazing. My point is there's room for another RRP. Right. Well, we're gonna spend a few minutes today. Yeah. I will say before we get into the two projects that we're gonna focus on that um, I could talk for three hours about Dune, which I loved and have seen twice right. in an IMAX theater. Um, Foundation. You've seen it twice? On uh, Apple, t- Apple Plus. Yeah, I've seen it too. Of course I've seen it twice. Of course, it like, of course yes. you've seen Dune, Dune twice. I'm a huge sci-fi guy. I watched Dune. Dune is unbelievable, but we're not gonna get sidetracked, Adam. <laughs> I do want to shout out my boy DMAC, Dan McPherson, yes. who has an incredible uh, role in Foundation on Apple Plus, oh, cool. which I really enjoyed. It's a breakout performance for, for him. You. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, not just watching Dan, but that series as well, which, mm. is, which is very inextricably linked to Dune. Mm. Um, they share a lot of DNA. Uh, Succession, of course. I mean, there's nothing new or revolutionary about being a big fan of Succession. I'm obsessed with that show. I saw Power of the Dog the other night, which I thought was remarkable. The acting performances are amazing. So check that out. Um, Before we get into the first thing that we're gonna focus on though, is there anything else top of mind that you just saw recently that you wanna at least just check a box and- Sure, you know, I, I watched King Richard. Oh, you did? I haven't seen yeah. it yet. And uh, when I watched the original trailer, I didn't, I wasn't, th- I mean, it looked, I thought it looked a little corny to well, be you quite honest snart- with you. You also had a, I remember we talked about this weeks ago and you were like, really King Richard? Like right. it's gonna be about the Williams sisters, right. but it's about the dad. Here's the thing about me. I'm a cranky asshole you are. sometimes. You are a cynical <laughs> and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna have to debate you or throw you down to the mat here when we get into the movie we're gonna talk about a lot, but, I think. We're gonna but, disagree. But uh, but being be that as it may, 
I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed King Richard. Um, my problem was when you have the two greatest, two of the greatest, including the greatest women's tennis player ever. And then to tell their story and call it King Richard, I thought was it is problematic. Little, it is a little weird. But this, and this is actually the point. The movie only goes to the point where Venus is 14 and she just first turns pro. So it's everything before that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm guessing there was a carve out in terms of life rights that allow that is going to allow for hopefully like a Michael Jordan-esque 10 part series about the Williamses sure. because um, that has to come. They fully deserve it. And this though was extremely entertaining. You learn a lot about how much they worked and how much effort it took uh, to get the girls to be taken seriously by the tennis, uh, you know, elites. Establishment. And then yeah. how many times they were uh, tried to be taken advantage of, the, the how many beatings Richard took both in Compton and then uh, before that. Um, just a remarkable family, a remarkable American story and some great, great, great performances, not just from Will Smith, but from the girls, from uh, from everyone in the film mm -hmm. um, the, uh, who play Oracine, uh, the woman who plays Oracine in the film, let's get her name. Uh, she's fabulous. Um, and just a, just a really fun movie. So I've watched that and I've been watching a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is an that's, epic season. That's very character consistent. Yes. With it's, the crankiness. <laughs> It is, but this season is spectacular. And it's to me, like it's, everyone loves Curb. I love Curb even when it's a down season, but the last couple of seasons, it felt like an old guy trying to, you know, trying to get it back. Yeah. They got it back. I mean, this right. is a great season. Seth Rogen's in it. Vince Vaughn has a more prominent role. It's really fun. I've uh, I watched the first episode of the new season, but I fell off. So I got to get back into that. Yeah. But on, on King Richard, I mean, first of all, Oscar bait completely, right? Like yeah. this is gonna, you know, get a ton of nominations. Um, and although I haven't seen it yet, my understanding is that it really um, buries this myth. I mean, my recollection of that time, which is relatively vague, cause I'm not a huge tennis person was that was that Richard was sort of a, you know, Daddy Marinovich, like this hard driving, like really super aggressive, you know, win at all costs kind of right. dad. And he got painted that way. So this movie really fleshes that out the real character and the real human. Yeah, he wasn't that. that. He, 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 he wasn't he, that at all. He, he saw those types of tennis dads mm -hmm. and he didn't like them. Right. And um, he wasn't that. And the fact that, you know, you see all the, his whole thing was about avoiding burnout. He didn't have them play a lot of juniors. They played juniors for a little bit and then he shut that down and mm -hmm. that pissed off the coaches and no one wanted to, you know, you'll never get the sponsorship. You'll never get X, you'll never get Y. He proved all that to be bullshit. He said no to the first se several big dollar contracts that were offered to Venus even when she was 14. Uh, and it wasn't just his decision. He had Venus weighing in on it. Um, just uh, incredible uh, what they've been able to do. And he said it from the beginning, they're gonna be two, <laughs> the two greatest of all time. Yeah. And Venus was the pioneer right. that was the first to go through the hell and paved the way. And Serena came up behind her. And you could also see how Serena, cause uh, you know, Venus got to play juniors and Serena wasn't supposed to. Venus got to go pro and, mm -hmm. and Serena wasn't allowed to. You could see that, how that might've cultivated within Serena this like, you know, uh, world-class fighter yeah. that was going to take what she wanted and, yeah. and what an incredible athlete. All right, well, I look yeah. forward to checking that out. Yeah. But we have to 
pivot our attention to the greatest documentary ever made. Okay. The Beatles Get Back. Adam Skolnick. Yes. Thoughts. Well, I, I don't know why you think we're going to disagree about this. I enjoy <laughs> I'm enjoying have, it. Yeah, yeah. We have a little bit of a difference of opinion, which we can get into in yeah. a jocular way. I mean, I'll just share like yeah. I was I'm in I'm halfway through part two, but after watching part one the other night, I went into it, I saw the trailer, but I tried to avoid reading anything about it because I wanted to go into it fresh. And right. you know, I love the Beatles when people say Beatles are stones, like I don't understand the question. To me, there's no contest. Like I'm I'm not like a Beatles fanatic, but to me, the Beatles hold a very special place in the yes. you know, encyclopedia of music. I absolutely love them. Um, but I did go into the documentary maybe with high expectations, but also not knowing what to expect. I wasn't even sure about the time frame or what it was that they were gonna focus on. Other than that, there was all this found footage and Peter Jackson was gonna take it and turn it into something. And I found myself just absolutely riveted by this documentary, mm. which for a lot of people might be an acquired taste because it takes its time. It's not story driven, it's a fly on the wall scenario in which you're observing the band trying to put together uh, a variety of songs for a live show, an album and a documentary. And this is footage that was taken in the winter of 1969, Jan the month of January of 1969, mm -hmm. chronicling this process that at times can feel for the non-fan to be painfully slow and laborious, but I found it to be like, a, like, like this, like, the unearthing of an historic document that belongs in the Smithsonian mm -hmm. because it chronicles the birth of some of the greatest songs ever written. Mm -hmm. And you see them as they emerge in the, um, you know, in the dynamic, in the, in the challenging dynamic that the band is facing at the time because they're on the precipice of breaking up. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's like a fly on the wall in a room with geniuses plus George and Ringo. And um, See, this I, kid, where, I kid, you know, look, I kid, Jason's I kid, I kid. Jason's gonna come out here and strangle you. <laughs> I, I gave Jason, major <laughs> Beatle fan, George and Ringo fan, editorial purview over your words. So if you speak out of school, it's getting cut from the Listen, podcast. First of all, I love George and Ringo. Um, I especially love Ringo now. Cause like I, well, I've, Ringo I watched- Ringo comes the, out really like, I think if you just sort of take Twitter's temperature on mm -hmm. this, there's a lot of love for Ringo right now. Um, a friend of mine uh, married the, the, a friend of mine, uh, married, Brooke Fine married uh, the guitarist uh, of, who was the lead guitarist for Ben Harper for years. And he also played with Ringo and mm -hmm. raved about Ringo's musical acumen, acumen. Watching this, I watched the first, the full first episodes, two and a half hours or 240 or something like that. Right, the and whole thing, all three parts is something like eight hours. Eight, eight, eight and a half or something, eight, yeah. Um, and I could see why, cause you know, the thing is there's 40 plus hours of footage and- uh, There's like 56 hours. Is it 56 hours? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then like a, over a hundred hours of audio. So it's, you know, if I'm Peter Jackson, I wanna give the most I can. And I think he's done it. He has such a light touch. You don't see him in it, but you know, it's so artfully edited that mm -hmm. he's obviously done such a great work. Um, and uh, so anyway, Ringo, I, I love Ringo in this. I think he he's there, he's, oh, he's working hard. He's, he's basically attached himself to Paul's hip, 
but he's also like always present. Um, Shows up on time. Yeah. Never, very punctual. Never a negative word comes out of his mouth. If Paul is in studio, Ringo's in studio. Yeah. But Ringo, because he's not writing the songs and because he's the drummer, he has to sort of sit quietly while this dyna- songwriting dynamic is playing out. Yeah, and, he surfs it. And I watched part one with my boys, Trapper and Tyler, and Trapper's a drummer. And Tra- <laughs> Trapper was like, never have I ever seen an on-screen persona that I more heavily identified with than Ringo. Cause I, I've been present for, I don't know how many hundreds of hours yeah. of watching the boys rehearse with their cousin and different band members. And, um, and Trapper being the drummer, he, I mean, there were lots of times where he's just sitting on his drum, at his drum kit, like reading a book or looking at his phone while everybody's arguing or yeah. working something he's like, out. And that's exactly kind of the Ringo vibe. Like he's just chilling at the kit. Ringo ready is to the, go whenever they figure out what they want to do. Yeah, Ringo is the tweener that's wondering when mom and dad will stop yelling at each other. <laughs> yes. um, I, you know what was cool though to see? Like, I, I love seeing Ringo at the piano. I love seeing right. um, you know uh, John on bass, and 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 he could see Paul tell Ringo um, what riff he wants, and talk to George about the mechanics of what he was looking for for a particular song. Um, I think it's Get Back or one of the songs. Mm-hmm. And and to be able to see Paul just like rock in his chair and actually create Get Back in such a riveting way. You thought Ringo looked bored. I thought Ringo got it and was hooked. Like I, 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 I felt him like getting it, whereas George seemed like he was yawning. He's well, like, George oh, this shit yawning. again. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted <laughs> that. There's, a, there's one scene that's just unbelievable where Paul is literally creating get back out yeah. of whole cloth in real time. Like you can see it percolating up in his consciousness and yeah. he's playing it and you hear the kind of, you see where it's going and there's George yawning. And like, look, it's not a slight on George. Like maybe they'd been there like eight hours and he'd been doing that for three hours, who knows? To me, Ringo looked bored too, but the idea that you're a fly on the wall and mm-hmm. you're seeing the inception of these phenomenal songs just percolate up out of nothing is really miraculous. It the is. same thing happens with Let It Be. Yeah, that, Paul's like at the piano and he's starting to play, Let it, he's working it out and everybody around him is like talking about a bunch of bullshit. Like yeah. they're, they're like distract, they're doing other stuff. And you're like, do you realize what's happening yeah. right now? Like how incredible that there were cameras rolling at that very moment. And it seems like he starts with a melody and maybe a hook in the vocals, and then he builds the rest of it. He doesn't not worried about the words as much. Yeah, whereas, the lyrics, like, yeah, they just yeah. hum through a lot of the lyrics and they kind of figure it out in a group setting. Yeah, and then, and then and John- they're, they're very cavalier about the lyrics. John is much too. more the words guy, it seems mm-hmm. to me. Although then yeah. Paul edits him a little bit, like this is like too on the nose or too corny. Right. And, and um, you know that that stuff to me to to be able to see the creative process of one of the greatest partnerships in all of creation, um, certainly in all of 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 I guess Western popular culture, um, to to be able to witness that is is spectacular. The reason that you're saying that it's not for everybody is that some people just want to listen to the hits and they don't really need to get into the minutia. So for them, and that's certainly the case of people I watched it with, they thought it was a little bit too slow mm-hmm. and that, that it was a little too aimless. And it was like a little too, a little too. See, Whereas I guys, sit, geeks I like us. I would sit through all right, 56 right. hours of it unedited because I think it's such a, 
uh, a rare and precious glimpse into uh, not only genius, but the creative process in general. Like if you have any interest in how creativity operates, especially in a group setting, whether you're a musician, a writer, a screenwriter, a TV writer, anybody who's trying to birth something unique and creative into the world and has to do it with other people to observe how some of the greatest songs ever crafted came together with a group of people who you know, we're having issues at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it also is a litmus test um, regarding like how attuned you are to what those creative processes look like. Like, mm-hmm. have you had experience with them or not? Um, people who have not been in bands or haven't been in TV writing rooms or things like that could observe what was happening with the band and say, oh, you could tell they're not getting along. You could tell like this band's about to break up. This is all falling apart. But if, you're, if you've been in a band or you have like tried to collaborate on something creative, like I saw that and I thought they have a really, cause there's this narrative like, oh, they all hated each other and they were breaking up right. and they couldn't communicate. Right. I saw very healthy communication. Yes. They would disagree about things. They didn't seem to but hate they each other. Always treated each other with respect right. and grace. They maintained their equanimity at all times. There was always levity and comedy. Like they're always cracking jokes. Yep. They had their difficult moments, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it because right. things actually go down. Like shit hits the fan and stuff like yep. that. But overall, like I saw a group of people who who really love each other yep. and were trying to do something. Yeah, George did seem a little pissy. I will say that. Well, we'll let people watch it and form their own opinion about that. I yeah. know you have issues with George. I always love George. <laughs> but Here comes the sun. Um, you know, uh, what's what's the other one Listen, I love? Yeah, there's something very special. Jai Guru between, Deva between Paul and John. Yes, that made it very difficult for someone like George, who is extremely gifted to have his voice being heard. And that's gotta be really challenging. And Paul and John, you know, are admit as much in the the film. And so that's kind of where things start to to go a little bit sideways, but let's not forget how young these guys were. All of them were young. I mean, George was 26, I think. Yeah. And I think Paul and John were 28. I think I think John was 28 and Paul was 27, 27. or something. Yeah, 20, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. It's and unbelievable because you, I would have thought like even being a fan, like, oh, they broke, like if you said to me, how old were they when the, when the Beatles broke up? I would have said, I don't know, 35. Right, no, no, I knew, yeah. I knew that they were like 29 or something like that. It's or amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought it was fun to see Yoko and Linda and Ringo's wife, who I'm spacing mm-hmm. on her name, um, looking so good. And then George's Hare Krishna buddies look great. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> sorry, okay, sorry, Jason. Start. Yes, George brings in, there's a couple Hare Krishna monks that sit in the yeah, corner yeah. at, uh, what's the studio called again? It has a very British name like Wickenham or something like that, <laughs> yeah. Twickenham. Yeah. Um, and then Yoko who pulls up a chair and kind of sits right with the group. And what you notice over time is, although there is something a little bit um, presumptuous about her kind of inserting herself right into the middle of this dynamic, she never says a word, No, she's not bothering anyone. And it really upends 
that narrative that like Yoko Ono broke up the band. Like you, it's, it's hard to make that argument after you observe this. You know, I, I said that to a friend who has not seen this yet, but who said the Let It Be documentary is kind of the opposite of that. And I didn't see the Let It Be documentary. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Where it makes it seem, mm -hmm. it kind of plays up the divisions a bit more. They are angry at each other that, that Yoko is kind of getting in the way. It doesn't seem that way well, in this in part, particular in part setting. Well, part two, Paul kind of addresses it directly okay. and kind of you know, puts those rumors to bed. Okay. I mean, they acknowledge like, okay, like they acknowledge like, oh, well, Yoko's here, what does that mean? And they talk about it. Um, I think the bigger issue uh, is that when Brian Epstein passed yeah. away, they didn't have like a team captain right. anymore. There was a power vacuum. Right? Explain who Brian Epstein was. So he was like their manager from the get go and somebody that they, you could tell in the movie, like how much they loved and trusted and respected this guy. They call him Mr. Epstein. He was their dad. You he know, put yeah. him in suits. He told them right. what to dress, how and to they do would, it. And they would yeah. do it. And then when he's gone, there's a power vacuum that I think, you know, I would I would intuit that Paul fills. fills. Like when yeah. you watch this documentary, you realize like, Paul's really the leader, like nothing gets done without Paul. He's the only one who has any interest in any organization yeah, yeah. or productivity here, because it's a bunch of artists yeah. and they think and do things differently. And he's really trying hard and in, in the best way to try to drive this train forward and get something done. But without Paul, like nothing gets done. Yeah, That's, that's clear. It. But without Epstein, I think it created this weird dynamic where um, Paul had to fill a certain power vacuum, but then that can lead to resentment. Right, and all right. Kinds of other it ways. would allow Paul to be Paul with, with, with someone with else some for them to exactly. talk to. George could exactly. have talked to Brian or, yeah, or, or, or John right. could, yeah. And right. um, because you need Paul as the engine, he's always gonna be the engine. He's the, he is the conductor in a mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Um, but to see them all together and make their magic and to have George come in with a fully realized song he wrote in an hour or at home that the night before and then have Paul just invent them in front of your eyes. Yeah, they're like, oh, I had this idea last night. And, and then they sit down and it's like 70% of the song is there and they're right. working it out and they're trying different things. And, and because you know the song so well, you're like, no, no, don't do that. It's like this. <laughs> and how about know? the original the original words for Don't Let Me Down was like on the road to, um, Rishikesh or on the road, something like that. It was that that uh, that uh, John was singing and playing, remember. and then he did one. Uh, he brought in a, a vinyl demo of Across the Universe for them to listen to, mm -hmm. and then they all got into it. I mean, right. like so the different approaches that they take. Like he actually yeah. did a whole demo of Across the Universe for people, yeah. and um, you know, th th there's this other thing I want to get out because. Um, I've read, I did a little bit of reading on the show before watching it. And I, like, I, like you, I stopped whenever a spoiler kind of came up. But one thing I, that I noticed a theme of was Let It Be is considered this lesser album. Mm -hmm. And partly because of Phil Spector kind of doing some, uh, you know, desk fuckwit stuff with it later. But um, in reality, there's five classics on this song, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I on this album. Cross the Universe, Let It Be, Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, and Two of Us, which I think is great. And then you have George, some of George's songs, which are great. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it's a, it, to me, I love the album, Yeah. Uh, but it is considered a lesser album, which I don't quite understand. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, can we talk about Glenn Johns? Glenn Johns. I mean, what a the, you superstar mean this guy is. Wait, Glenn Johns. In the background, he's the, the he's hammer? basically, no, that, that guy, would, no, not that guy. <laughs> Glenn Johns was <laughs> the, the sound engineer slash oh, producer yes, yes, slash yes. sort of silent be Beatle yeah, member yeah, yeah, yeah. who 
first of all, always has the best outfit. Like yeah. that guy's just rocking it. Yeah. Like comes in with the scarf and the crazy sunglasses yeah. and the like alligator skin jacket yeah. Yeah. and the whole thing and is in charge of creating the sound for all of this. There's one song I can't remember because I watched part one a couple of days ago at this point where they're, 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 they have a hurdle with one of the songs they're working out and they keep going back and forth and it's not working. And that was one of those situations where I was like, no, not that, not that. Yeah. And Glenn says one thing and it like solves a problem. Yeah, right. You remember that? Yeah, I do remember and that. And then he's, he's really like kind of this unsung hero and the whole thing behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and was like kind a, of, just an absolute did legend. Did he produce the record? I don't know, Jason, do you know? Like Glenn is just an absolute legend though, right? Yeah. Zeppelin, Stones, yeah. who? Yeah, and it's Let It Be. He comes up with the declining line. Right, okay. the, um, Let It Be, right, exactly. Sorry, Jason, right. sorry about musician, what I said. Jason so. just, gave me, just gave me a dirty <laughs> Getting look. Getting a stink eye yeah. from Jason? <laughs> How dare you? Jason, I love you. So J- the, the, the film comes out and Jason just basically <laughs> sits and watches the whole thing in one sitting. Ostensibly, right? <laughs> Jason, yeah. Jason, like, didn't get dressed that day. He just sat there. I mean, I literally, my head was exploding yeah. when I was watching part one. I just couldn't believe what I was witnessing. I was so um, grateful that this thing exists and that we got to have, you know, be able to witness this thing happening. It was, it's, I just, I just cool. thought it's absolutely magical. Like you said, maybe it's not for everyone. Um, but for me, I was like just injected into my veins. How did Peter Jackson get a hold of this stuff? Um, did he I don't just know. get I'm offered? Sure a, I didn't. Yeah, I haven't read up on yeah. that. But I know it's it's taken him quite a long time to like pull yeah. this thing together. And there's been a team of people working on it for for a while. Well, he lives in Middle Earth. It's hard to get yeah. the so footage all there. The, well, the footage was sitting in a vault somewhere right. owned by Apple Corps, right? And right. somehow he got permission. They never used it for anything. The right. intention was that there was going to be this documentary that for whatever reason they decided, well, there's nothing here. There's, it's funny, cause in the thing they're like, how's the documentary going? And the director who's a character in his own right with the cigar right. and the whole thing, he's like, I don't know. He's like, I, I don't think we have a documentary when things start going <laughs> yeah, sideways. Yeah, and yeah. John's like, what do you mean? It's taking off. Like <laughs> this is, it's now it's getting good. It's pretty funny. Yeah. How about the guy that like- and that, it's all like, and it looks like yesterday. Like, I don't know how much cleaning up of the footage great. Uh, had to be done, but it literally looks like yesterday. And the fact that they have, there's like a boom mic over the, all these private conversations that they were able to capture. Yesterday. Um, I like the hammer swinger. The hammer swinger who like um, is, is a close talker as well. He's a, no, he's he's- He's like, he's become a meme on Twitter too. Cause like, he's such a hero. Like he gets to bang, bang the hammer on the anvil yeah. to chime in on the song. Jason, what's that guy's name? That, that was their um, road manager. The road oh, manager, okay. right. Yeah. He does, he is a close talker, is he not? Right. Yeah. But he's great. <laughs> he's great. You see them, uh, the footage of the yeah. Beatles, like early sixties playing in DC. Yeah. Matt Levins is the guy that comes out on stage and spins Ringo's drum riser. Oh. Uh, the crowd. On the other side oh. the yeah, he's one of the guys from right. like the original. That's cool. Um, and what's the director's name? Mike, is Michael something Lindsay Hogg, Lindsey Hogg right? Yeah, that so guy. he's the guy with the cigar, and it's so funny. Like Taika Waititi tweeted, he's like, "This guy again, trying to get them to go to Libya yeah. for the concert." <laughs> it's like they don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> Pretty funny. I just love watching them in that room together. Right. So. How about when Linda comes in and starts taking pictures Amazing. and then you see the pictures that she's taking. Amazing. It's unbelievable. Soft focus and I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I get emotional just thinking about it. And then I'm like, why am I so emotional about this? But it is 
it's music history. It's beautiful. You know? It's okay to be emotional. It is, it is, it is music history. It really is a beautiful thing. So yeah. um, what else can we say? About that? Just well, about the movie. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I still have two episodes to go. Yeah. So I'm pretty stoked. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. I saw the, the end of the first episode. I was like, woo, I got to see um, Ringo's fat estate. Ringo is, uh, Ringo's a hero to many, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just his disposition throughout yeah. the whole thing is so laudable. It is. You know, team player. He's a team player. And he's like chill. But here's the and thing: like it's the others funny. are pretending to be spiritual, got, but Ringo your, is spiritual. You've got your George issue and blah blah blah. I never did though. But I never like, did. Here's the thing: these guys are artists. They I don't. Know. They don't function like. It's like who cares who showed up on time? Ultimately, all that matters is how great the album is. Obviously, Ringo cares. Okay. Obviously, all of those personality peccadillos can yeah. either um, make the band grow closer together or or split them apart. So it's not. You know, it is important. But what you see is Paul being this guy who shouldered the mantle of, of being responsible for like getting stuff done. You have John who's consistently coming in late, but in good spirits. And it takes John a long time to get warmed up. But once he gets warmed up and he gets in sync with Paul, magic happens. And yeah. then you see them telling jokes and screwing around and yeah. you know having fun. And you think, well, that's not productive, but that's important for the whole creative process. Like you can't have one without the other. And, you know, artists, they just, they're sensitive beings and they don't function, you know, rationality isn't necessarily a priority. I agree. Look, I'm not saying it matters. You don't have to be on time, especially if you're John Lennon. So here's the thing. Yeah. George didn't have to show up on time, but he damn sure had to get there before John Lennon. <laughs> And Ringo couldn't be last, you know, Ringo had to be first. So yes, it doesn't matter, but it does matter. There is still standing, there is still the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. John could be last, Paul mm -hmm. could have been last too, but John, but he would never be last because he knows someone has to be there first. And if he gets there, he knows Ringo will get there. So mm -hmm. then there's waiting for two people. I mean, that's just part of the workmanlike thing. That's what you're seeing in this, which yeah. I like. I'm not criticizing John for being late at all or, or George, but I just think it is interesting. George definitely was, he, he was late, but he wasn't as late as John. I got you. Also, I appreciate all the little details, like the, the um, kind of roadies who come in and give them tea. Yeah. And, and t there's always toast. I love the you tea know, and toast. toast and marmalade. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the sound record is for the documentary is Alan Parsons. Amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Well, so watching that, alongside this other doc that you turned me on to, Todd Haynes directed doc, The Velvet Underground. It's called Velvet Goldmine, is that right? Uh, or, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, Velvet Goldmine was another movie that Todd Haynes okay. did. That was a narrative So this is nominated. Velvet Underground doc. Right. It doesn't really have it's a- it's, I think it's just Velvet Underground. Velvet, Velvet yeah. Underground. And it's the kind of like a partner to this other thing, whereas Peter Jackson's got the invisible hand doing incredible work, Todd Haynes is, definitely mixing it up. You see his hand, but it's remarkable. Right. And he's using incredible filmmaking techniques to create this hypnotic split screen, tiled um, artistic vision that not only gets you into Lou Reed's mind and John Cale and Sterling Morrison and Mo Tucker and all the entire band, uh, Nico, but also the factory itself and Andy Warhol who managed the band mm -hmm. and, um, Man, I, I want you to talk about this and I've got some things to say, but uh, to see the two of them 
back to back, it really set my mind and my brain into such a, a lovely swirl. It really was a it kind of got me thinking about the nature of creativity in general. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these yeah. movies I think go very well together for that reason. Mm. Uh, they're both time capsules um, about very romantic periods. I mean, I have a irrational romantic attachment with New York City during the period of Warhol's factory. And so this is like, you know, right up my alley, this kind of movie. Um, but I think what's interesting about both of these movies and in particular, the Velvet Underground movie is that most rock documentaries are talking heads reflecting upon the past. Mm -hmm. Whereas both of these movies really immerse you in a present moment, they're experiential. Like yep. you're, you're with the Beatles when they're recording this album. And similarly, you're with the Velvet Underground because they have a lot of footage of them in their Genesis phase. Yep. So you're experiencing that band at its inception and living with them as they try to kind of put the pieces together and 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 create something. Of course, there are some talking heads in the Velvet Underground. But it's, that, it's spice, it's but not, it's, it's not. It's, yeah, yeah, it's not, it doesn't form the architecture of the whole movie. Right. And the movie is crafted so that it feels like an Andy Warhol experience. Yes. And he uses much of Warhol's film, like Andy Warhol would, would put a camera on somebody's face like Lou Reed yeah. and just let it roll for like an hour, right? right? And and Lou would just look into the camera blankly. And he uses the split screen in the movie to use those clips, a lot of black and white. Um, so you feel like you're in downtown New York City in the early 1970s. Yep. And, and you, can, you can like taste the grit mm. and you can feel the energy because that was a period of time in which there was this flourish of interesting alternative creativity that was happening. Um, that was very special that, that birthed like so many amazing artists, not just in music, but in art and film, mm -hmm. and theater, et cetera. Um, and I think that's why I have such an obsession with this period of time. Mm. And certainly the Velvet Underground occupies a very special place in that, you know, in that kind of conversation. Interesting because, you know, I, I wasn't, the context of Velvet Underground, I had all off. I thought they were early seventies. I didn't realize they were like late sixties. And so, mm -hmm. And this antidote to the, you know, kind of flower power. They were the counterculture like within the counterculture. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were they were the first punk band, I think you could say. I mean, mm -hmm. I would say it. Like you, you, would, you would look at it and it's like the sound on the dark side of the doors, you know, or the, like the drone and the, and, and. But it was more performance yeah, art yeah. than punk. Yeah. And what was fascinating was learning about how, how it all came together, mm -hmm. which begins really with, um, with Kale and his Welsh yeah. you know, upbringing yeah. as this classical musician who got intrigued with um, experimental music that was going on in New York City moves out there for the purpose, sole purpose really of, of kind of spending time with these, these artists who were really pushing the boundary of what even music was just playing around with tone, right? Like yeah. just let's, how long can we play this tone and immerse ourselves in this sound, you know, just really pushing the envelope of like what people would tolerate and what that experience would look like. The and son of a coal miner. Yeah, yeah. amazing story, yeah. this guy. But also fascinating is that so many of these important people end up in the same apartment building <laughs> at, at 56 Ludlow, yeah. which mo you know, much like the Chelsea Hotel becomes right. this ground zero for 
all this incredible art that comes out of it. And it was the, the kind of proximity of these artists and the free time that they had. Cause I think it cost, like they all live there cause it costs like $25 a month. So they didn't really have to work that much to right. pay their bills and they could fuck around all day experimenting with tone and sound and Get their, all of these things. And they're 10,000 hours. Do these kind of salons where, you know, all the hipsters would come together and they would indulge themselves with whatever kind of art, arti- artistic kind of thread that they were pulling at the time. But the truth is it might not have gone anywhere because they were playing this this uh, cafe and that actually people hated it, except for one person who was in with the factory, I forget her name. And uh, she sees it and tells Andy that she, they have to he go there to and they need to see it. And then next thing you know- there was a cachet know, to it, even though like mainstream people were, were hating it, there yeah. was a core group of people who were like the cool people who were into it. And well, the real inflection point was when, and I think Kale says it in the documentary, like at some point during this tonal you know, experiment, Somebody put a put a put like an electric guitar pickup on it. Yeah. And then everything changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Lou Reed wasn't even part of it at the time. There was this guy called Lou Reed and he had a he had a satchel full of songs and he enters it, you know, after this tone experience yeah. is already kind of well underway. Yeah. And it and becomes this perfect. Yeah, perfect storm that creates this whole new thing. And then they add then Andy Warhol becomes the manager and then brings in right. Nico and Which basically I didn't know insists, anything about. insists and foists Nico <laughs> upon him. And Nico is this glamazon, like gorgeous, you know, uh, Scandinavian um, who has this androgynous voice. So it, it hits on so many Warhol levels, the model mm-hmm. type look with the androgyny and and with this this drone and and you know obviously Lou is in that where you know Lou came up when he was a teenager he was playing the gay clubs in New York mm-hmm. City um you know so like it was all work and they and like you said they hated the hippies and so it's this very interesting um mix uh and like I said to me it like the two of these things together kind of had me contemplating the nature of creativity, which is not something I do very often, but I, sometimes it comes up and, you know, what is art? What is music? What is literary form? What is any sort of scene or culture? It just, isn't it just a collective dreaming of what it means to be alive, to be human um, and all its ugliness and its beauty. And um, now you have to, the stuff has to hit for money to be made. So you can continue that dream together but that's not the primary driver. And it's not why what brought uh, John and Paul and George and Ringo together. It's not what brings these people together. Um, you know, it's not the underlying motivator of mm-hmm. any scene and um, or any any collective, um, you know, like, and to be a part of a scene, how cool is that? Like, you know, like I, that was always the dream coming up when I wanted to be a writer with my buddy Kelton Reed. Um, when we we joined forces and we thought we loved the beats and we loved this era too. And, you know, I love reading Just Kids, Patti Smith being a part of that mm-hmm, scene. Right. Um, and, you know, you you are actually part of a scene. You're like this early podcast. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is its own type of scene. It's more, it's a little bit more removed because everyone's dislocated in different places, but you're very much on the forefront of this podcast scene. And you're connected to some of these people who are early innovators in the space, um, which is, I think, another interesting art art form that's just starting to flourish. And um, you know, I was talking to not long ago the head of PR for Audible about something else, and she mentions like neuroscience studies about how um, part of the reason people love podcasts and love audiobooks is 
is when you listen versus when you read, it hits a different part of your brain and it, 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 it gets into the intimacy part where, mm-hmm. the, where that kind of lights up. And so, you, you know, it, it's, it's in its way interacting as a different art form and the way people used to feel about music, the way I felt about music or my favorite bands and the merch we wore is now like shifting into the podcast and YouTube space and people are getting merch for their favorite, you know, creators in a whole different we- realm. And it's, uh, this is the kind of stuff I was thinking about while yeah, I was watching. I mean, it's, fu- yeah, it's funny yeah. to hear you say, I mean, yeah. I will take it as a compliment. That's cool. But like I, my brain is thinking, well, I would, like if this is a scene, I would trade this scene to hang out with like Spalding Gray and David Byrne sure. and like Lou Reed and Andy Warhol. Yeah, you know, yes, or whatever yes, was going on yes. down there. Like that just seems way more exciting. Yeah, and well, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's yeah, less sober, like, I think. No, very much not a sober scene <laughs> for sure. Perilous probably would have killed me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God yeah. spared me from yeah. being reared in that time and place. But I you know think. what I'm but, saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I understand. I mean. It's cool. Like I, I do think, and it's interesting because my sons are musicians and I'm always thinking about like the power of community, like the, what those scenes are. Like you think of grunge and you think of Seattle or you think, you know, it's like what's going on in Nashville and country music. And so I'm often like, or even LA at a period of time when like Beck was coming up, right. like there was kind of a scene at, at Spaceland and right. Silver Lake and all of that, but that doesn't really exist anymore. Or, so, or Guns N' Roses and the, you know, sure. It, yeah. Yeah, like the the whole Sunset Strip, right? Like, right. like metal era right. kind of thing, right? Um, so I always talk to the. I'm like, you know, tell me what it's what is the scene like in LA? There's like they're, they're like there's not really a scene. I mean, but there's a little bit. I of thought a scene. that Phoebe Bridgers has a scene. Yeah, going there's on. a little bit yeah. of that, and they're kind of on the you know outer periphery of that, I suppose, but not like that scene where you feel like, oh, this is this is the place where this stuff. Like, there's that that palpable sense of like something's happening here. Because it, media is so siloed now yeah. and there's so much more of it. So there's like the, the, the saturation of so much content everywhere, you can't possibly all be tuned into the same channel. But back when the Beatles were coming up or, and, and you know, there weren't that many channels. But so, if 56 Ludlow Street didn't exist, does the Velvet Underground ever come to be? No, but like Elizabeth Gilbert would say something else would. Right. The, the world didn't need Velvet Underground. It's nice that it existed. Something else would have been there and it'd been just as cool. It mm-hmm. just would have been different. Mm. You know, like that's what, but now it's like this, there's so many more scenes. And so then you have these kind of microclimates within that world, yeah, you know, within I guess, the content. Because it's so, everything's refracted and, right. and diffused. Right, now. right, right, right. There is no monoculture. But, right. but these movements are always a contrast to whatever the monoculture is, right? No matter where culture, exists, the artist's pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction. And there is something to be said for proximity. Like now we have digital proximity yeah. that kind of resolves a lot of that. But, but you know, the idea that there are a bunch of artists who are basically squatting in an apartment building with nothing better to do than to collaborate all day long, there is something unique about that. Yeah, right. And then, then the fact that cheap rent is a key to kind of getting artists together is obviously well known. That's what happened with Williamsburg when Williamsburg mm-hmm. became a thing in the early 2000s yeah. and, and plenty of bands came out of that era. Seattle in the nineties, you know, like plenty of bands came out of that era. You, you can't take real estate prices out of, the, out of that realm right. there. And so, or rents, not real estate prices, but rent, rent rates. Um, so, um, but it is interesting to think about. And plus now it's more global, right? We have access to 
Korean bands and and uh, and African music sure. and like the, if you like drone music that you're hearing in the Velvet Underground, like you know, check out the Desert Tura guys that are coming in Mali and and um, Algeria and and you know listen to those guys because that's all like blues meets sure. drone. And discovery raga. is discovery yeah. is at your fingertips now, whereas yeah. it used to be difficult to find new stuff if you didn't have the cool older brother, or right. the guy to take you or the guy at the record shop who could tell you what was happening. Right, right, right. So, so it's it's right there for you. Yeah. Um so it's just a different era. Um a couple final thoughts on this documentary though. I, I, I thought like it was cool. Like I didn't really realize that I mean, you talk about Andy Warhol kind of being in charge, right? Like that had its pluses and its minuses. Like without Warhol, does it ever get out of the gate? And yet after a period of time, like they become stunted as a result of that relationship and resentment around Nico and all of that kind of occurs that leads to ultimately the dismantling of the band that never really saw the level of of success that I thought that it had. Like it was interesting to hear like, Oh, they never really like penetrated culture no. in a way that I thought that they had that. That that comes much later. And, you know, obviously Lou goes on to this successful career outside of the Velvet Underground. But what I thought was amazing was like Sterling Morrison goes and gets his PhD yeah. in English yeah. and is like a professor for a while. And then he becomes a tugboat captain. Yeah. And then Mo the drummer is like an IT professional, mm. like, can you imagine like you're at your company and like you, you have to go deal with the, the head of IT or whatever and you realize she was the drummer in Velvet Underground. But only the cool ones realize that because I bet a lot of people went in right. and out of that office without even no having any idea. idea who Mo Tucker was. That's amazing. Yeah. That these lives, you know, having full kind of careers and lives, you know, in 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 the aftermath of of being part of something that was so culturally seismic. Herman Melville became a customs officer after Moby Dick. He did? Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted 
so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, let's do some listener questions. Let's do it. All right, let's go to Al from D.C. 
Hello, Rich and Adam. This is Alan DC. I'm calling with a question about uh, ramping up my endurance training. I've been doing time-restricted eating and feeling great doing about an 18-6, eating lunch at about 2 o'clock and stopping my caloric intake at about 8 o'clock. But recently, I've been ramping up my running miles, training for a 50K in the spring. And I'm feeling like morning runs, doing you know 12 or 15-mile training runs, and then going another four hours fasted. After that run, may not be optimal in my gains and recovery. Uh, I'm just curious if you have any insights on how I should be adjusting my caloric intake to uh, to optimize my gains during this uh, this ramped up training period. So, if you could place the question on the air, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks very much. Thank you for the question, Al. Uh, DC is a great running city, great place to train for 50k. Um, I think your your instinct and your intuition is correct. Uh, I appreciate the interest in and self experimentation with restricted eating windows, and I think it's fascinating the kind of uh, science that's coming out around this and the experimentation that so many athletes are doing. Uh, my take on this, uh, with the caveat that I think there's a lot of science that needs to be done before we can get total clarity on this, but as I see it now. Uh, my perspective is that occasional fasted state workouts are okay. And the science does support that there may be a mild adaptation to that stress that enhances aerobic state fat burning. Um, and I've experienced that myself and I enjoy playing around with that. But I think the emphasis has to be on occasional because if you're training for a, a performance goal, which you are doing right now, the key, I don't have to tell you to success is consistency, consistent training with an emphasis on um, not only uh, you know killing all your workouts, but perhaps even more importantly, optimizing your recovery between sessions. And I think your current approach of a persistent fasted state will not bode well with this. You simply cannot perform day in and day out with this fasting regimen without something going sideways at some point because, or at a minimum failing to timely nourish yourself is only gonna deplete you, which you might be able to get through your workout for the day and the next day, but at some point it catches up to you um, a couple days later often. And this is gonna impede your recovery. It's gonna impair, potentially even depress your immune system. It may even lead to illness. Um, depriving your body of, of needed nutrients, which is only gonna undermine recovery and, and thus the gains that you're, you're seeking to achieve. Um, I don't think that I could be wrong, but I don't think there's any elite athletes out there who are trying to train in this manner or who would entertain doing this. You've gotta feel, you've gotta feed yourself, you gotta nourish yourself. And as your training ramps up and it becomes more and more, um, uh, not burdensome is the wrong word, like more and more onerous, like you're gonna, you're taxing your system in a way that perhaps you haven't before. If you wanna be able to bounce back and do it the following day, you're gonna have to feed those muscles and your body. Uh, so again, fasted state, okay from time to time, occasionally, I think it's good to stress the body and establish um, physiologically and also psychologically that you're capable of going out and doing a long run and, and not eating right away afterwards. I think there's something to be said for that, but not on a daily basis. Um, if you do wanna continue to play around with this, I would suggest restricting those, those 
fasted training days to maybe one at the most two days a week and to do it around your uh, purely aerobic workouts and to avoid it when you're doing tempo or more anaerobic workouts. So that's my two cents on that. Again, um, I think what's going on here is interesting. And, and like I said earlier, more science is needed to figure this out. Oh, science, science. quotes, quotes. You and your science. You and your science. Um, I would fully agree with everything you just said. Mm, thank you, Adam. Um, I'm experimenting with a avocado toast diet right now. <laughs> Pre-workout or post? Pre, during, How post. How long after your workout? And there's zero fasting involved. Every hour, it's more avocado toast for me. Mm. Um, when you're not eating, I guess technically you're fasting. If you have like a <laughs> like a 20 minute fasting window. My biggest your fasting- Your fasted state. My biggest fasting window is on roll on days. <laughs> yeah, we've gone a couple <laughs> hours without you eating. Are you okay? Get me some avocado toast, yeah. stat. Um, you're in your fat burning zone. <laughs> Right now. Uh, great question. All right, cool. Let's go to Kendall from Boulder, Colorado. Hi, guys. This is Kendall from Boulder, Colorado. My question and or point of discussion, I guess, is the idea brought up uh, in the conversation with Rain and Riz around the idea of the pursuit of happiness, which is an American, obviously an American thing. And I think it's something I see show up on the pod um, a bit, but I guess I ask, are we dismissing that aspect of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because we think that the idea is to achieve happiness, whereas it possibly could be that the forefathers wrote it, the idea of it being a pursuit without the end ever being achieved. I know that that was brought up in a couple of different um philosophers, but I'm kind of curious what you guys think. Do you think that the pursuit of happiness is an end or do you think that it was always meant to be a pursuit and therefore the process along the way is what creates the happiness? That's my question. Thanks guys. Love the conversations. Getting deep and philosophical with Kendall from Boulder. Deep and philosophical with the founding fathers. I know. Are we going to be so bold as to try to read the minds of the founding fathers, Adam? A lot of people are doing that lately. <laughs> Not in this vein. <laughs> a lot of people are doing that currently. Currently. Across the spectrum. On a lot of channels. Um, did the founding fathers ever comment on this? Has, has, has a legal scholar tried to interpolate what that means? Like whether they're focus was on pursuit versus happiness. Has, has anybody parsed that to your knowledge? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that that uh, George Washington was Brian Epstein um, uh -huh. and uh, you know, uh, Ben Franklin was John Lennon. Right. And um, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was Paul. Mm. Yeah. Very industrious and productive. Who's George? Who's Ringo? John Quincy Adams. <laughs> Okay, how do we layer that archetype? No, one of them is Hamilton. Yeah, Hamilton. George is Hamilton. Maybe. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I can't read the minds of the founding fathers. I have no idea what they were thinking about. My interpretation though, is that um, it's about the liberty of the pursuit. So mm. whether it's the pursuit of, I don't know whether they ever um, expounded upon how they define happiness 
or whether happiness can only be found through the pursuit. I'm not sure that they really thought that through all that mm-hmm. they did. I don't know. Um, but but for me, it's about the liberty to pursue. Yes. Right. Um, and I don't think uh, you know it's good practice to be orienting your life around this aim of happiness. I mean, happiness is a choice that we have in every moment. We can choose to be happy. We can choose to not be happy. And in my opinion, the pursuit should be focused on meaning and fulfillment and giving back service, things like that. And I think happiness is a byproduct of doing other things, not an end to be pursued in and of itself. And personally, I mean, the things that make me happy are really kind of uh, temporal states like, oh, I like, you know, jumping in the ocean or, you know, something like that, that makes me happy. But right. my life isn't in pursuit of jumping in the ocean, right? It's a, it's a fleeting thing that I enjoy that gives me happiness. Um, but more broadly, like the things that create a, an extended sense of happiness in my life are not the things that we're kind of force fed in our culture, mm. like luxury and convenience and um, you know what your bank account says and all of that. They're really the result of strain or getting out of my comfort zone, tackling hard things, trying to find a way to give back, pushing my own limits. And as an American, I'm very grateful to have the liberty to explore these things, which in turn ultimately lead to a greater sense of happiness, but I don't think about my life in the context of happiness every day. That's right. not really how it works for me. Yeah. I don't think how, that's how it works for anybody. I think that's what Kendall's getting at. I think he wants you to speak to, I mean, I think he's kind of teeing it up in that way. I think he agrees that um, it's about the pursuit of some meaning or about, mm-hmm. about the, but, but I think you're also getting at what they're, they're not trying to define pursuit or happiness. So while I agree with you and I think Kendall is, is saying the same thing and that's why he wants us to speak to this. So the idea is, isn't to happiness as this goal, but the pers- happiness can come in the pursuit. I don't disagree with that. But I think what they were getting at was more creating a, the environment so that everyone felt the f- feel like they can pursue whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And so, um, obviously they That's didn't, the obviously they That's didn't the create that environment, piece. but yeah. in their mind, they created it in their, in their narrow construct of what they thought was appropriate and, and good for the white male. But that's, that was that time and that's what they did. And, um, but I think if you look back, they weren't, they weren't actually creating that, but they thought they were, or they tried to frame it that mm. way. Um, but because when you look at studies, if you're in a country where, um, it's it's harder to get a loan. You can't start a business. You can't. If you look at Venezuela or or Cuba or these places, there's a lot of unhappiness because the structures of that society aren't sure. allowing for the pursuit of anything really. Yeah. Um, and so I think the idea was let's create a place where the crown's not getting in the way, where taxes are low, where you know you can really just go out and do what you, you know. Yeah. In, in Equi- and young country equitable access. Right. Equitable access, which is the thing that we would like to expand because it obviously mm-hmm. it was imperfect then. It's imperfect perfect now, but um, that idea of that democracy is obviously something special because it has been replicated Mm -hmm. in many places. And so um, I think it was creating the conditions to where we can have discussions like this without having to uh, be stressed out about uh, any sort of 
overlord or, you know. Yeah, I mean, short of being a, a mind reader, I mean, pursuit of happiness in the context of how they were contextualizing it or thinking about it, I think meant or means like the freedom to go do whatever the fuck you want to do, right. basically, without the crown getting involved, right. like you said. Right. Yeah. Happiness being a catchphrase for essentially like living the life of your choice. Right. Exactly. Have we created that here? I don't know. And and no. your idea that you don't pursue this jumping in the ocean every day as the you father do. of a fifteen month old. <laughs> It's something I pursue on a daily basis. I don't get in there. <laughs> it takes a lot of pursuit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and quite frankly, but what is the half-life of that feeling of happiness that you that that is produced by that? 15 to 30 minutes. Right? So that's the thing. Yeah. It's not a it's it's not a lasting state. It's not a fasted state. No. That happiness, is it? No, that's why I've moved on to the avocado toast. Right. All right. Do we answer the question? I think so. Kendall. Kendall could be the judge. Yeah, Kendall, but leave us leave us another. We're moving voicemail. on now. Let's go to Abby from Colorado. Abby. Hey, Rich and Adam. This is Abby from Colorado, and I've been a huge fan of the podcast for around four years now. So thanks for all you do. My question to you revolves around reconciling two different topics that I know have come up on the podcast from time to time and that are challenging for me to try and balance in my life right now. The first of these ideas is resisting the need to be a people pleaser, and the second is maintaining a service mindset. No matter what obstacles in life someone is facing, helping others is one thing that will always bring more joy and fulfillment to anyone's life. In my eyes, the simplest and easiest way to serve others is by being kind. However, I'm also trying to become less of a people pleaser by staying true to my values and opinions and not bending them to fit the idea of what other people want from me. As an Enneagram type nine, which is the peacekeeper, my natural tendency is to avoid conflict and be liked by others reinforcing my need to please people. I pair that with the mission of serving others through kindness and warmth, and I find it really hard to be authentically myself while navigating day-to-day -day life. So this is one long way of asking, where do you draw the line between people-pleasing and serving others? Thanks, and you can definitely show us on the air if you'd like. Bye. Well, Abby, in addition to that being just an amazing question, I feel the need to applaud you for extraordinary self-awareness. Yes. I thought it was a phenomenal right? question. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I wish, I don't know how old Abby is, but like that level of self-understanding I think is huge. I agree. And I love this anagram type nine. I don't even know what that is, but like I, I remember getting really into tarot and astrology and stuff. I love done the anagram stuff. Yet? I haven't done the anagram. All right, this is your assignment before the next roll on. You gotta go do the anagram and come back and we'll, we'll analyze it. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I'll refresh mine and see where I'm at. We, <laughs> okay. can, we can hash it out. All right, let's do it. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. I relate to it a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand that tension between um, people pleasing, serving others and trying to establish some kind of healthy boundary. And I think unpacking that begins with, um, first of all, uh, kind of a, a peek into your motivations. Like, is your service, this kindness or these other things that you're doing on behalf of others, is it motivated by a desire to be liked or is it motivated by the impact that it has on others? And I guess then in turn, your own sense of self, like sort of getting clear on what your motivations are, I think is important. Um, and, and perhaps even more elementary, getting clear about 
your values? Like, what are your values? So when you're acting in, in a way that feels like it's not authentically you, that's an indication that your behavior is not aligned with your core values on some level. So developing a practice of checking your decisions against that value set will help you calibrate your behavior and your level of alignment. So again, clarity about those values, if you have to write them out, what are those core sets of values? And when throughout the course of your day, when you're people pleasing and trying to be kind to people or whatever, where do you feel like those behaviors come into conflict with your values? I think is a good place or, or, or a good lens through which to kind of deconstruct all of this. Um, if you're people pleasing out of a need to maintain the peace, but that ends up being contrary to your values or violates some kind of personal boundary, then that's good information that you need to realign your behavior to get it more consistent with your value system. So your value system, value set dictates the boundary and protecting that boundary at times demands that you potentially place yourself in conflict with others, which then violates your peacekeeping disposition. And that's where the discomfort comes in, right? Like you don't wanna bum anyone out, but you also wanna be true to yourself. And I suspect that you're somebody who would rather um, say the thing that makes people feel comfortable rather than adhering to a boundary or mm -hmm. making sure that you're being true to yourself. And I think that's the growth opportunity, like recognizing that. And when those moments arise, can you set a healthy boundary, do it graciously so you're not upending the peace unnecessarily, right. but also respecting yourself. And I think when you do that as uncomfortable as it is, there's a little kind of dollop of self-esteem, like a little kernel of self-esteem that you're planting that allows you to start to get more comfortable with who you are. And I think you'll also find that, you know, look, the peacekeeping thing, the people pleasing thing, that comes out of a lack of self-esteem. Like, oh, if I don't tell them what they wanna hear, then they're not gonna like me and my opinion, you know, isn't valued or whatever. But in truth, people respect you when you demonstrate self-respect. So by setting a healthy boundary and saying, I'm sorry, I know you want me to do that, but I can't do that or whatever the case may be, may be uncomfortable and, you're, and every instinct inside your people pleasing body will be saying, oh my God, they're gonna hate me now. But ultimately they end up respecting you more. Hmm. And then you end up feeling better about who you are. And then that muscle once flexed becomes easier to flex the next time. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a natural people pleaser and wanna be kind and all of that too. I find that like, there is a self-motivation though to, to act in kindness and grace because it means you just like move through the world cleaner. Mm -hmm. You don't have these hangups of, you know, if you if you create conflict uh, needlessly, you don't you carry that with you. I sure, think. And yeah, it, it, it can be a drag. But I and think so, that, yeah, I get that. I mean, I don't think there's any disagreement around that. Yeah, I yeah. think it's when that urge or disposition to people please, like let's say you're around a bunch of people that you have issues with right. or that you know say things that you don't agree with, and you just kind of like nod and go along to get along because you don't want to ruffle any feathers, right. and then you leave and you feel like you have a toxic residue around you because you didn't stand up for yourself right. or you didn't 
acquit yourself in a manner that that you know would be more consistent with what you think is right and mm-hmm. true. Yeah, so it's a it's it sounds like to me it's about when to service is 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 such a an important thing and it's cool that she has that in mind. Um, and then not being a pushover is important to be able to serve people. Right, but kindness is not antithetical to self-respect and right. healthy boundaries. Right. Like you can still be kind and be strong. Right. So figuring out how strong. to how to combine those two. Michelle Obama seems kind and strong. Yes. Right. She is who how we about, should all how be. How about Sylvia Earle or Jane Goodall? There like go. they're both very kind people, yep. but are very convicted yep. and very clear on what their values are and you know, strong in their opinions. Right. And don't suffer fools lightly. But are very kind people, right? And are amazing examples of 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 service mm. to humanity. How about that for? I think that's a good triumvirate of role it. models. We landed the plane. We didn't. Did we crash the plane? I don't think we did. No, there was turbulence. It was a pretty smooth landing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had to steer clear of all your controversial ideas about George. I know a lot of Just George. Hey, the hey, stabilizers. Hey, li- dear listeners, <laughs> a lot of George fans in this building. <laughs> yes, yes, there are. <laughs> No one wants to hear me sing. Yeah, we do. All right, we're gonna end let's, it. Let's get the karaoke okay going. It was a pleasure sharing space with you, Adam. How do you feel? I still have this blister right under my toenail. Have you ever had one of those? Wait, Just, I, I, I like how you right under brought there. it all around like a good comedian, yeah. brought it back to the beginning. Right. But I'm not indulging you on in that. <laughs> we're ending it, all right? Um, you can find Adam online at Adam Skolnick. You can follow me at Rich Roll. If you want uh, to leave a question for us to consider talking about on the podcast, you can do that at 424-235-4626. We will have copious show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. So check that. Please, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you enjoy this program. And that's it. I wanna thank the team for putting together an amazing episode. I certainly do not do this alone. Jason Camiolo, Beatles fan extraordinaire with equally strong opinions about the Beatles lurking in the shadows over there. He is our Glenn Johns. He did the audio engineering production, interstitial music, all the behind scenes stuff. Blake Curtis and Dan Drake are the, uh, what was the name of the Beatles director again? What was his name? Michael. Michael Hogg. Michael Hogg. Michael, Michael Lindsay, Lindsay Hoggs. Yes, Blake and Dan are our Michael Lindsay Hoggs. Uh, we have Daniel Solis on graphics, AJ for TikToks, Davey and Grayson for portraits, Georgia for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships, and theme music as always by my own uh, Paul, uh, Ringo, and George, Tyler Trapper, and Harry. Is this Thank our last guys. one? Of the the, year? Uh, the the last roll on of the year? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. You tell Are we me. Doing. I think maybe we have one more. We have one more. I can't remember. We might have to chamber a timeless one before I take off for January okay. or whatever that isn't wedded to the news cycle in any yeah. way because I think we might have to put one up when I'm gone. So we'll figure that out. But until then, appreciate all you guys. Thank you for listening. We don't take your attention for granted, and we'll be back when we're back in some general vicinity of bi-weekly, whatever that means to you. Final it's, thoughts? It's been a pleasure. Always. It's good to be back. Thanks, man. I think we did it. We did it. Good enough. It's, it's great. Okay. Bye. Bye. Peace. Bye.
by rich. Bye. Bye, gang.